using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Friday, the 29th of December, year of our Lord, 2023. Well, I'm Tony Arterburn. I'm filling in for the great David Knight. I am joined by the legendary guard Goldsmith. Thanks for having me. We've got a great show lined up for you. We've got guard here in the first hour, Don Jeffries in the second and a very special third hour, Charlie Robinson, Mr. Anderson, Billy Ray Valentine. And talk about a new phenomenon of Gen Zers. <clears throat> Looking up to Osama bin Laden. They like Tim Osman. Can you believe it, guard? <laughs> it's one heck of a sell. Well, what an absolute honor. The final David Knight show for the year. We're closing in strong, giving uh, David uh, time off, which he, I don't know how he does it. If, you, if you've ever felt. Guard, you're a veteran now of, of hosting this show, and uh, does that just give you all the more respect for what David does? I, I've started filling in uh, in 2019. It is it does not get easier, my friend. Uh, I mean, oh, it's I, amazing. Both, both vets now. Yeah, yeah, Tony, and it's great to see you. Happy New Year early, and uh, and thanks for being such a stalwart anchor during 2023 in my life and also on your own programs. And when you fill in for David and, and join David on Thursdays, at usually at 1030 in the morning Eastern time. Uh, and that's not to plug, but boy, praising David Knight is uh, not sufficient. Uh, it, it, the work that he does, uh, as you know, the burden that you feel uh, for the audience is, I think, only paralleled or matched by the burden that you feel because you're so honored to fill in for David, who does, you know, such astounding work that you want to step. You've got to step it up. You've got to do an amazing job. Well, uh, I think uh, having you on uh, helps uh, to expand uh, the intelligence quotient of the show for sure. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here in the first hour. We and again, we've got a a great show lined up for you. Uh, final show of the year. Uh, for the David Knight show, uh, we're gonna we're gonna close strong with a with a round uh, table panel. Hey, do you want to do uh, the third hour? You're welcome to come back or just stay on the line. I don't whatever you'd like, guard. I, I those open. those people are all great heroes of mine. I'd love to stop by, say hello, uh, wish him happy New Year, and of course uh, let them know that the IRS agents will be stopping by this year. <laughs> that was eighty-seven thousand. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're going to come before the FBI because, of course, these guys might be concerned parents hanging around outside of their school board meeting, and that's evil. Or they could be Catholics, so that's evil, too. Well, they're from the government, and they're here to help. <laughs> they're here <us>. to help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I've got uh, – Gard and I were talking off air. And, by the way, we're streaming live on freeworld.fm. Uh, that's the the – the group project between myself and, and Billy Ray Valentine and, and Don Jeffries and, and others uh, guard will be joining us there. We got a lot of great hosts. It's a, 
it's another lifeboat we made for free speech. So if you're you're uh, hearing about this, David will be uh, streaming live there very soon. We're working out some of the technical issues, but FreeWorld.fm is picking up the show. Uh, so I wanted to shout that out as well. And and I will be paying attention to the Rockfin chat to hear on uh, David's channel for sure. Uh, I'll periodically kind of go back and forth. So if you got comments and uh, questions or anything you want to throw into the Rockfin chat, you're certainly welcome to do that. Gard and I were talking off air. And, uh, you know, this is another uh, aspect of why I respect David so much. You have to choose in in, in this era, or if, as David would say, error, in this er- era, you have to you look around and say, okay, what's what are the the headlines that mean the most? What what can I glean? Because I got you know only got three hours. It seems like it seems like a long time, but when you're talking about this massive amount of news coverage and information, what's what are what are some of the themes? And that's kind of what I do with my show. And Gard and I were talking off air, and I said, now did you see the story about how Russia and Iran? Uh, formerly, and I, we've, they've been doing this for a while, but backing away, they've dumped the dollar. And the uh, guard says, yes. And he goes, and then I saw where Lindsey Graham called for the bombing of Iran. And I said, aha, I, I did the same thing. I put it together. Uh, the, the stories are right next to each other. I mean, it's so predictable now. Let's let's pull up this headline. I want to talk a little bit about this. And Yeah. Um, and and hats off to the anti-war people. Uh, they do a great job at at antiwar.com. Boy, a- absolutely. I don't I, I don't. I need to to get better at uh, sending them some donations. I, I've used antiwar.com for years and years yeah. after I started reading uh, Pat Buchanan. Let me see if I can pull this up. Here's here's the story. Here, stand by. Uh, yeah, Russia, Iran finally dump the U.S. dollar for good. And this is off uh, MSN.com. In a bold move that shakes the foundations of international trade, Russia and Iran have officially turned their backs on the U.S. dollar. This decision, a strategic pivot towards utilizing local currencies in their bilateral trade, marks a significant shift in the global economic landscape. The move not only challenges the dollar's dominance, but signals a deeper integration within the BRICS alliance as Iran prepares to join its ranks in 2024. Gee, nobody could have seen that coming. Oh, no. I mean, our, our, you know, 40 different sanctions on 36 different countries weaponizing the dollar. You know, we we abandoned the Breton Woods system. Oh, we we didn't break our word, did we, guard? You know, uh, oh. having Richard Nixon take us off the gold standard in 1971. That didn't d- completely disrupt the new economic world order, you know, from 1944 onwards. No, right? Of course they were they were deceptively sort of breaking their word from the moment the Fed began because they were, you know, uh, surreptitiously issuing, uh, going into uh, fractional reserve banking, and they they weren't telling people that they only had a fraction of what they could have promised to people if they wanted to redeem their dollars for the percentage of gold that they promised. Right up to the point where Nixon said, "Okay, yeah, a lot of foreigners have been buying our gold, so shh, don't tell anybody." But we've already lost a lot of the United States held gold at Fort Knox, so yeah, it looks like we're pretty much going to have to go off this. Uh, this fictitious dollar connection to the to to an ounce of gold because that that was one of the reasons why they said well you know once we allow people to own gold again guess what people are not going to want to hold on to that dollar that they keep pumping out they can't keep pumping out the gold the way they pump out the dollar so guess which which one is going to lose its value and that's what they do and of course they have incentive to do that because they can only tax so high to keep 
funding their welfare pigsty and then they can this so they have to borrow and the only way they can facilitate their borrowing is of course by getting the federal reserve to buy their bonds and create more money by doing so which is destructive to to the productive capacity of every human being out there well yeah and and there's so many factors to what the the term is called de-dollarization and that's one I mean, it's a theme that i talk about all the time on my programs anytime i'm a guest anywhere because it's the historical implications of what's going on not being picked up by the mainstream media it's going to be like something we've never actually ever experienced in history because we have never lost the world's reserve currency status as the American people. You know, in 1944, as you know, Gardner, they set up the Breton Woods system. You've mentioned you've been to the uh, the Breton Woods, the, the hotel there where they where they right. met. Yeah, my and brother had his wedding there. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. they set up the IMF. They had they set gold at thirty five dollars an ounce. It became the world's reserve currency. And that lasted until not, that system lasted until 1971 and one of the the you know the the themes going on through the 60s was the debasing of our coinage uh, you know the 1964 was the last time that we had silver in our half dollars uh, quarters and dimes and dollars uh, from the US mint other right. countries took notice as a matter of fact i was talking yesterday to to uh, a friend of mine mr anderson and i said you, you know that de Gaulle, the president of France, sent his warships over in the late 1960s to pick up the gold because other countries, they wanted those dollars redeemable in, in gold. And I and this is interesting because I, <laughs> I was talking to Guard off air. I bought yesterday from a customer. I don't usually buy notes, but this one, and uh, there's another one I'll talk about later, a, a $5 bill. This is a $20 bill from 1950. Okay, I know you can't really see it on the cameras. Not I can't reach that far. But it's a it's a 1950 $20 bill. And uh, let's see if I, can, I, I I need I need a magnifying glass, really. But there's some fine print on this bill that you won't see on a modern Federal Reserve note $20 bill. And if you'll bear with me, I'll see if I can read it. Uh, and of course, this says, it says this note is legal tender, uh, you know, and can, is is can be cleared, clearing all debts, public and private and is redeemable, this is the key, is redeemable in lawful money. Otherwise known as gold, specie currency, gold. Right. Right, right. It's, and it's, of course, the difference between specie and fiat, if people aren't familiar, specie is hard currency, gold, silver, some other recognizable long-term uh, commodity of, that people find of common value. And fiat currency is that which is imposed on us by government fiat. And uh, and you're right. You know, the, the, the interesting thing, Tony, is you had that happening and people were aware of it. When Roosevelt called for people to turn in their gold, my mom told me, my grandfather, who had only a sixth grade uh, education, ended up owning a company with, you know, three plants. He actually owned the very tip of Montauk Point on Long Island and they had, they had to sell it. It's worth like, you know, $10 million now or something like that, but they had to sell it. So he had been a very successful guy. He didn't turn his gold in. He's like, no way am I turning my gold into that criminal. And over the years, of course, the, the imbalance grows and grows between what they're issuing in the paper currency and what people can actually redeem. Because if they wanted to redeem that, say in 1955, they would uh they might it wouldn't 
it, they would have been issuing more of those slips. So if people, if all the people who had those slips wanted to redeem them, in 1950, there'd be a higher chance that the U.S. Mint, the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve could, the Federal Reserve could exchange it for what they promised they could exchange it for. Right. As the years go by, more people have those things, but they don't actually represent the same percentage. Now it's a smaller percent. More people have them. They go to turn them in. Sorry, oh, sorry, we sold out. <laughs> it's gone. And then Nixon, as you say, breaks in at the, uh, what was it, the close of Bonanza or during Bonanza in the right. 70s. Yeah, breaks in uh, August 15th, 1971, uh, interrupts an episode of Bonanza and uh, takes us off the, closes the gold window. He, he used, used the word temporary. <laughs> so <it's> 50 <laughs> plus years ago. Well, the interesting thing about this guard is that this, this is a redeemable and lawful money. So what it's saying is this isn't money. Right. Good this point. is a certificate, right? right? This right. is a certificate so you can obtain lawful money and how, and the, the cruel joke about this is in 1950, you couldn't get as a, as a, private citizen you couldn't get this redeemable in gold this was for the other countries that use the dollar that's what that's this was great for point. and you know they should point out that that sort of draws that distinction between statute and constitution and statute and natural law uh those you know the items that we agree to uh, ourselves personally as human beings uh, as something that we recognize as something with value and we make a contract, we make an agreement that's based on natural law. That's respect under God and agreement. We don't lie. We don't, we don't cheat. We don't steal. Um, statute, of course, written by the state on between those on the, on the constitutional level, people often will use the term lawful when they are sliding something in nowadays to say, well, is it, is it lawful? They're implying constitutional, but they don't really mean it. But that actually does mean constitutional because the constitution only permits the federal government not something that's granted a monopoly by the government called the federal reserve it only grants the federal government the ability to coin money and affix the value thereof and it's not even supposed to be the exclusive money that's one of the things ron paul has brought up anybody who's interested in free banking and understanding how to stop the inflationary process is Get it out completely away from any political hands because they're the ones who are incentivized to use the, the statutes to say this is all you can deal with and then just keep creating it to pay off all these people that they gave promises to so they can get votes. If we had a private banking system and the banks were holding their own stores of gold or silver and they wanted to issue redemption slips that they might call whatever, you know, bank A dollar or bank B dollar, whatever, then we could compare and say, excuse me, can I check your stocks? Are you operating on a fractional reserve? Do you have enough that if you have issued these papers, my friends, if I give them this, they will know that they can go in and get that solid real money, that so-called lawful money, whether or not it's uh, under under the Constitution. You want to think of it as the Constitution or it's just person on person. Are that, am I ripping them off if I give them this or, or will they get the money? And then if the banks say, sorry, we don't want to show you. Well, then we wouldn't go to the banks and my friends wouldn't take that money. Well, right. It's and it's a trust issue. Yeah. And that, that's what's the the, uh, the crux of, of de-dollarization is not only the the sanctions, and we were talking about Iran and Russia, and, I, and I, this has been going on a long time. And Russia, in the last 18 months, has called U.S. dollar candy wrappers. That's from their finance minister. Right. They right. stopped using dollars. They've, they've done all kinds of deals with uh, direct uh, 
you know, country to country uh, using gold, uh, using the Chinese yuan, uh, you know, trading crude at, you know, for uh, for discount, for, you know, if it's paid for in rubles. I mean, they've just they've gone around the SWIFT system. Yeah. And these other bricks are on on the on the rise. We were talking about the massive uh, decline in the use of the dollar, which is called money velocity. Now, I want to, you know, it'd be great if we could run a simulation to see yeah. what would Lindsey Graham be doing if fiat currency didn't exist. If if we yeah. didn't have a fake dollar, would we have fake people like Lindsey Graham in in the the halls of power? Would he would he be a factor without an unlimited fiat currency? I tend to think that people like Lindsey Graham would not be on the world stage. He would not be uh, in the United States Senate. No way. He'd probably be trying out for an off Broadway production of Gomer Pyle. Or something like that. <laughs> Maybe Pirates of Penzance. You, you I don't know. It, you I'm, took it there. He's, he's going to do something. Is he going to be in the South Pacific? He's going to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lady Lindsay. <laughs> and I, you know what's what's pretty funny, Tony, is I, I don't have to go to the share screen thing. But on my screen, I have the exact same article you and i are thinking like our minds are connected it's just amazing how this this system especially the united states uh, united states inflationary system starting with world war one on the the central banking system has facilitated all so much of the united states militarism around the world and if you look at the the fallouts to that whether it's through the uh military industrial complex that Lockheed Martins, the Boeings of the world, the BAEs that grow so big. And then the secondary effects from that, which is the feedback loop going back to politicians. I've mentioned before, former Senator, United States Senator from New Hampshire, Kelly Ayotte, she got bumped out and all of a sudden she gets put on the board of Boeing. At the same time, she's on the board of Boeing. She's on the board of Fox News. Where is she appearing? On Fox News, talking about how more weapons should go to Ukraine. And now she's running for governor of New Hampshire. So this system becomes very corrupt. But even the local people, they might not even realize that. The, and you were in the military. You know, I'm sure you recognize this as well. The vast expansion of the military influence in the United States, the military corporate fascist ties go all the way to the base closures and how angry so many people were when they were trying to close some of the bases. Not in my backyard. This is our jobs. So it, it becomes very intractable when you have this sort of inflated system. And right now, the shakedown is starting, you know, just like at the end of Wizard of Oz, when the wizard says, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful of you. Well, there are two signals there. First, you've got to liquidate assets that are up too high and there's been malinvestment, in this case, in the war machine. And the second one is you've got to allow the prices to reflect the real value of those resources based on the choices of the market, of the people in it. Well, since the United States population sort of assumes that it's a very important role for the United States to defend the United States, the United States government to engage in defense, and they use that as a smoke screen to engage in offense and payoffs all over the world, opening bases all over the planet, surrounding Iran with bases. Evidently, uh, that's that's the sort of ring that uh, Lindsey Lindsey Graham really likes—a ring of bases around foreign nations. Um, so many people get inculcated in this idea of 
well, if you stand against that, you're against the troops. Well, maybe our perception of the United States and the way that the Monroe Doctrine has been warped and expanded uh, over the past 150, 200 years, maybe that ought to be readjusted. And part of this now with the BRICS nations shaking things out, I think we're going to see tremendous push, as you see right there on the screen. You brought it up. People like Lindsey Graham and the Warhawks, they're going to come up with any excuse or rationale they can to try to gin up even more war. And they're they're targeting they're going to target Syria and they're going to target Iran big time. Well, seven countries in five years. Yeah, uh, yeah, know, absolutely. General Clark uh, hap just happened yeah. to walk in on that at the at the Pentagon post post nine eleven. Yeah, this antiwar.com. Yeah. Senator Lindsey Graham calls for the U.S. to blow parts of Iran quote off the map. This reminds me a lot of uh, John McCain's uh, bomb 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 Iran, oh. two thousand seven. Absolutely. John McCain, by the way, the man uh, uh, of whom I have photographs shaking hands with Ole Tjanibak, the oh, the admitted Nazi of Ukraine as they were arranging the new government with Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt on the phone in their famous F the EU phone conversation from early 2014 while they were getting Hunter Biden put in a Burisma after the Maidan coup in late 2013 in which the United States and NATO uh, NATO forces were intimately involved to make it look like the government of Ukraine shot on its own people, which they did not. It was Western NATO forces overturning the elected president there because he was too close to Russia and they wanted to isolate Russia. Why? Partially because Russia dropped its long-term investments in bonds starting in 2009 as the American Recovery Act blew up the money supply even more under Obama. And uh, something that is also tied to, as you mentioned, France at that time, the, you know, you recently reunited uh, Germany asked for their gold back and the Federal Reserve said, oh, we can't give it to you. It took them years to finally admit like, well, yeah, maybe we'll give it to you in dribs and drabs. Uh, so uh, we can see very clearly uh, what has been going on with the people who are telling us they're fighting for freedom or, or that they love Jewish people. Right. Because their type of mindset, Lindsey Graham will not tell you that he was shaking hands and putting his arm around a Nazi from the Slovoda party. People can look it up. His name is Tianibak with a T-Y, Tianibak. And he's in multiple photographs with Joe Biden as well. And uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar. They all met together. They were all there. They were well, they all in those, photographs on stage with that guy. They, they all They knew. have these justifications, I'm right. guessing, in their own, their own minds yeah. or what's left of their soul. You know, they compromise yeah. so many times they don't even exist anymore. <laughs> but remember, they, they, if you criticize them, you are by proxy criticizing Israel, the state of Israel, and therefore you're anti-Semitic. These people who are meeting with neo-Nazis in Ukraine will tell you that. Oh, right. Yeah, they use the most ridiculous arguments to shield themselves from criticism. And you yeah. mentioned earlier about, uh, well, you're not supporting the troops. Well, I was a troop. I would have, I would have loved it if we had a, an America to first foreign policy. You mentioned the Monroe Doctrine. That, to me, is my foreign policy. Don't colonize the hemisphere. Stay out of our affairs. You know, peace, peace, commerce, and honest friendship. I, I'm more with that Thomas Jefferson fellow. I think he knew what he was talking about. Or John Quincy Adams saying that America was not designed to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. I'm with John Quincy Adams. I, I'm not with Lindsey Graham. I'm not, I'm not with these psychopaths.
Because this, 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 this leads to cataclysm. You talk about, you know, a lot of times, Guard, I, I read a lot of history, and I'm fascinated by it. In some of the history you read, like World War One, you had these statesmen that were very smart, uh, uh, spoke several languages, were, were skilled in diplomacy and uh, realpolitik, all that stuff. They couldn't stop World War One. Even the Kaiser, if you read about it, the Kaiser couldn't figure out they had the von Schlieffen plan. Once it was enacted, they started crossing in the borders of Belgium. He tried to turn it off. He couldn't even turn off his own war machine. Yeah. And these were smart people. You fast forward now, we've got nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological, AI, all of this, all this, these terrible things. And you have Lindsey Graham and Joe Biden, or you have uh, Speaker of the House, you have Mike John, you have these these brain dead and soulless really in a lot of ways, just void of any humanity in charge of things. And they're just blundering their way into cataclysm. It looks like, and this, this is a, one of these headlines guard that really, you know, and again, we, we follow the, the line of, you know, Russia, Iran dumping the dollar officially. This is the headline. The next headline is Senator Lindsey Graham uh, calls for blowing Iran quote off the map. Folks, these things are related. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the again, kudos to the people at uh, Antiwar. If I could just mention something that they bring up here in the first two paragraph paragraphs, they do a great job. They say Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, has called for the United States. I also think he represents Israel, Ukraine and uh, many other portions that are, you know, considered de facto states of the United States now. But we'll just continue. Uh, I don't know how you get representation in any political system. It's all forced on you. And if you're represented, what about the next guy? But that's my anarchist argument there. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham has called for the U.S. to bomb Iran in response to Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. That not being Houthi and the Blowfish, although some of their music might be considered pretty offensive nonetheless, uh, saying Iranian bases and oil fields should be blown off the map. Oh, Yeah. That's going to be really good for the U.S. economy. Just, just unbelievable. Even if you, even if you want to look at it as, as that sort of a callous way to approach it, peace, peace and trade. How about that? I haven't seen Iran engaging in the behavior that the United States has engaged in since Iran uh, got its, uh, its leadership back after they toppled the man who was put in in 1953 by the CIA. Yeah, uh, the good. hawkish, yeah, the hawkish senator claimed that without Iran, there would be no Houthis. But writes Dave DeCamp, and hats off to you, Dave. My bald head shows it. But the Houthis, formerly known as Ansar Allah, are a homegrown movement of Zaidi Shia Muslims. Zaidi Shia Muslims ruled the area of North Yemen that the Houthis now control. For about a thousand years until 1962. I wonder if Lindsay's going to mention anything about that. The arrogance of these people. The, they have no historical sense. You watch that documentary, The Fog of War. McNamara goes over to Vietnam, starts talking to his counterpart that was uh, there throughout the Vietnam War. And they said, why did you continue to intervene? Didn't you know this was a civil war? Didn't you know that we weren't going to be under the Chinese column? We weren't going to fall in line. It wasn't monolithic. We've been fighting the Chinese for a thousand years. Yes. Yes. And it's the same thing with Iraq. I mean, they, the, 
you, you have to see parts of it completely on purpose. You know, if you believe in the conspiracy theory of history, which I do, because that's where all the scholarship is. But if you look at Iraq, they really thought, because I was part of the, the tail end of the invasion of Iraq, they really thought you could hold that country with less than 50,000 troops. Are you serious? That's what Donald that's... Rumsfeld thought. And that's why oh, they just, they man. didn't even send in the armor. They didn't send in, the, they didn't send in all the things that you would need because they thought, well, we'll be greeted as liberators. Were they, were they using some of the opium that they were increasing in its <laughs> supply from uh, Afghanistan? Hey, at the I had time? to, I had to protect, don't, you know, those, those poppy fields, I had to protect those in Afghanistan. Don't you know, guard? I'll never forget know. being 22 years old, bringing my team up over a hill. We were called out to these coordinates. They said, you need to go over there. There's a, we need to get some pictures of this area and uh, get it back to to the base. And I said, okay. So I go and I go over this hill. It's this massive field of poppies, and there's just armed people. I don't know what, who they were with, but this is like after the Taliban <laughs> fell, and there was just massive massive fields of poppy in the middle of the desert. So it'd be like just barren Mad Max yeah. wasteland. Yeah. And then you'd take a corner, and then there's just you know <laughs> fields forever, as far as you can see. Fields of green. Yeah, well, they're not green, but it's yeah, that little right. red, little uh, orange colored flowers. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that that is that is a real thing. That's a that's a that trade in Afghanistan that was revitalized after the the U.S. invasion because the Taliban and 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 there was just a report. You know, I mentioned on the Liberty Conspiracy Show. There was just a report that mentions that, and I showed that that uh, infamous interview a couple times. James Bovard uh, guest uh, guesting. When I was hosting David Knight's show the other day, I got to play the the uh, the video of um, of uh, uh, Geraldo on the ground in Afghanistan. Clayton Morris actually on Fox then 20 years ago, uh, introducing Geraldo via satellite. Geraldo speaking with um, a Marine named uh, Christmas, Brian Christmas, and they were handling uh, the security for the fields and the narrative that they gave was well if we don't do this the taliban will take over and you know we have to allow these locals to do it because if they don't do it the taliban will do it the drug the drug trade will just skyrocket well this is exactly what happened under the u.s there and then when now that the taliban is in they've actually been destroying the fields and the the percentage the proportion of the world's uh poppies and opium that are coming from Afghanistan has now dropped such that Afghanistan is no longer the number one supplier of opium related products, but I think it's Myanmar. So, um, it, you know, the narratives that they give people in the United States, it's almost as if, especially with, with modern technology, uh, you know, modern communication technology, going back to really the creation of radio in many ways uh, with uh, the fireside chats and so on, it just facilitates propaganda so much. And I think there's, I don't know about you, Tony, I wanted to ask you about this. What do you think about the psychology of people who might not necessarily be first inclined to lie, but because they get on that political treadmill and they're constantly in that battle zone and they constantly have to present these narrative stories, um, they might fall into that trap. They might amplify something more than they need to, to make it sound more alarming. There's always that tendency to try to, well, I'll gain attention by being pithy or telling somebody that, that something is a big emergency or something like that. And uh, I don't know how one can get around that, but there are people who do seem to get around it. Thomas Massey does a terrific job. He's very honest. I don't know whether you, do you think it's just part of human psychology? Maybe it's a mixture of some of these people who are just corrupt and then the others sort of 
following in their footsteps and seeing the patterns and how they can get their bread buttered. Um, to me, it's uh, and perhaps with this do- de-dollarization happening, uh, maybe we'll see more desperation. But after a while, maybe people will start to realize that the United States activities around the world have been bankrupting us. Well, I think it's a series of small compromises these type of personalities make over their lifetimes until they don't know who they are anymore. And like kind of looking at the, you know, the story about Lindsey Graham and, and the people that have supported war, you know, you start making justifications for it. I remember a story about Lyndon Johnson when he was running for Senate in 1948 and his whole political career was on the line. So I mean, he couldn't, he had to leave Congress to run for the Senate. So he had no lifeline back. And that was his, I mean, it was his last stand. He was running against a, a guy named Coke Stevens that should have won hands down. He was the former governor of Texas, a stalwart constitutionalist, would have been a great senator. Well, LBJ had the Brown and Root money. You know, he had a lot of he had a lot of lot of outside money, and they started just pouring it in. And one of the things that he ended up having to read was he had to read a very right wing ad on air that was anti-union it was very it was very much antithetical to what his platform was but he had he had to get this endorsement and he just talked himself into it he said if i don't read this and i don't do it enthusiastically then i won't be senator and i can't help the people that i say i'm going to help anyway yeah so he justified it that way and i think they just make these serious now he's probably he was probably as a as evil as he was yeah. He was probably a little bit more cognizant than I even think these people are, which I mean, <laughs> I think, I don't know if they've even given that any sort of, of, of thought at all regard. So yeah. I don't know. We might be, yeah. we might be giving them too much credit you know, if they're even self-aware. Uh, well, I, I was just wondering if maybe they could, you know, package their, their, um, their phraseology and their narratives and their fables into small bite-sized pieces that would be uh, easy enough to digest from say TikTok. But then I realized that the more I watch TikTok, the more anti-Semitic and Nazi-like I become. Because Nikki Haley told me that, <laughs> and I love it. She says she's her statements. Uh, you probably saw Tony, and before the show, everybody, Tony and I were talking a little bit about how Nikki Haley was in New Hampshire, actually not too far from when the, where there was a Union Civil War prisoner of war camp, where guys were literally eating worms to survive. Okay. And she has to, she said not quite the right thing about the civil war. It didn't fit the narrative of it was about slavery. Don't talk about anything else. It was about slavery, which is completely off base for anybody knows anything about the civil war. That's an absurd. Because she's been watching TikTok again. You got it. You see? So there you go. And anti-Semitism can now be opened up to all sorts of things. Now, perhaps we'll even have a rainbow aspect of uh, you can't be anti-Semitic because that means you're anti-LGBTQI. I don't know. But uh, so, so she comes back and she apologizes and in her effusive, drippy crocodile tear apology tony you know she comes out and she says well i i meant i i meant it was about freedom but of course i mean it really you got to understand part of that is it's slavery Uh, it it was about slavery and i just thought she goes on and says i want to stress that you know i am and i'm paraphrasing now this is a nation that we have to stress freedom 
of individual liberty. You know, all the all the pat lines that they hand us while they're picking our pockets and reducing our liberties and breaking the Bill of Rights. It's all about individual liberty and self-rule. Like, oh, then I can rule myself. Well, not really. You know, it, it's about this experiment in self-governance. So I, you're going to leave me alone. No, no, no. I'm going to govern you. I thought you just said self-governance. No, no, no. Forget about that stuff. So then she says, she says, freedom of speech. This is a woman who just two weeks ago was saying she wants to ban TikTok. Oh, and she also wants you to register. Yes. Any sort of use on the internet. So it, right. you, you have to, you have to show your face. You can't even go back to the founding fathers who wrote under pseudonyms. Yeah. Because even during that time, right. You know, to, Brutus, to craft the Federalist Cato. papers and other arguments to the foundation of the country. Yeah. was anonymous in so many ways. What about yeah. silence do good? What about yeah. Benjamin Franklin? Can he not do that anymore? Do we have do we have to be identified uh, by Nikki Haley? And you know what's uh, interesting? When revisionist history people can't get enough revision, so they have so the, the revisionist meets a super revisionist, and then they don't know what to agree on, and they're talking to a public who has no idea about any of these things. I mean, most, if you've ever done, seen the man on the street, which I'm sure you have, Garth, you just watch people. They don't really know. Most people don't know the history of the civil war yeah. or about yeah. uh, the, uh, the issues with, with trade or, or the economic powers of the North and industrialization or fourth turnings. I mean, they have no idea about any of these things. They just, they got to throw out that platitude. It's all about, you know, it was, you should throw that Lincoln quote in there about what he said about the saving slavery yeah. in the union right if he you know, could so save could the free... union without freeing a slave he would do it yes. he didn't care he did not care he did not if i could care. free all the slaves and save the union i would if i could free half the slaves and save right. the union i would if i could free none of them right. and save the union i would that's what lincoln said and by the way you know we're gonna have uh, don jeffries on in this in the second hour and his book hidden history starts out with uh secretary of state seward having a bell on his desk under Lincoln, um, for those for those who know what I'm talking about, the, the Secretary of State for Lincoln was Seward, and he had a bell on his desk that he would ring to have someone arrested during the Civil War, including uh, the attempted arrest of Supreme Court justices, the attempted yes. arrest of uh, was it the legislative body of Maryland or Delaware? I was talking about this last night, just because they were going to declare neutrality, uh, you know, uh, e e eviscerating habeas corpus, which is even even though I wish it, it went further and that Congress couldn't lift the writ of habeas corpus under the Constitution, Congress can lift it. But Lincoln just decided, well, I can do it, too. Uh, it, it's just astounding. It's just unbelievable. And George W. Bush wanted to do the same thing. And the Congress at that time, with people like Lindsey Graham involved in the Senate and John McCain in the Senate, they wanted to grant the president sole sole arbitrary executive power to lift the writ of habeas corpus so that he can indefinitely detain people, which they had been doing for years. And part of the problem that they had encountered was that some of the detainees in Guantanamo had some lawyers who said, uh, are you ever going to charge these guys? Because according to the Constitution, you can't do this. You either have to lift the writ of habeas corpus for everybody or you got to get these guys an opportunity to hear the evidence against them and be charged with a crime. You can't just kidnap people and hold them. It's, of course, indirectly, they're, you know, they're threatening kidnap of all of us if we don't keep paying these fatuous criminals. So, you know, 
I, I don't know how much different that is than a mafia, but uh, maybe it's just, as I mentioned on my show, maybe they just use more decorous language. Oh, the, the mob are amateurs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they haven't understood the they've got to use Edward Bernays's propaganda techniques. That's the key. <laughs> this is, you know, the, the fight that I thought I really saw uh, in 2002 and 2003 was the Patriot Act itself. Yeah. And this is me at 22 years old. And I remember being, I was about to, I could just gotten back from Afghanistan. I was deploying to Iraq. And I remember just going, what are they doing? We didn't need this to, to defeat Tojo's Japan or the third Reich. What are they doing? What does that even mean? Like, why do I need to give up so much of my, of my freedom and my liberty so that the state can find people's quote unquote in caves. And I thought this isn't what this is about. And I knew that I just instinctively knew that it, it, you know, at a young age and I just watched this country headlong dive into authoritarianism and we saw that just spill over into covid 1984 this is what that was i mean they just were able to put this flip that switch and it's 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 terrifying you know we still have some remnants of of the constitution some remnants of the bill of rights those are hanging around it's more like a shadow of a shadow that we still have that but we are again this is they use the crises they use a never let a good opportunity go to waste. And then you start thinking, well, you had this all written up. And we're going to talk about this in the third hour a little bit. There's a there's an article up. I saw a couple of uh, days ago about how Gen Zers are, are they have a lot of admiration for Osama bin Laden because he wrote they read his letter and they're just kind of now stumbling upon uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy blowback. And everything. Right. We're going to talk right. a little bit. Of, I, I've got a great panel in the third hour to go over just the history of how we got to uh, 9-11 and then you know what 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 is Osama bin Laden's role what is it now that they're rolling out for kids uh, right. is this you know you talk about and this is TikTok. this is a TikTok phenomenon where yeah. they're reading uh Osama bin Laden's letter there's there's so much there they use these boogeymen they use the, they use these straw men that they right. that are that right. work for them, by the way. You know, you right. have that famous right. picture of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. Have you ever seen that video? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know, Tony, you bring up a couple of things, you know, uh, watching people like uh, Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal and others. Uh, Jimmy Dore's been doing a really good job. Um, uh, you know, one of the points that sort of ties into this, if you're talking about the number of Gen Zers who say, wow, you know, I, I was unaware of what bin Laden had said. Uh, that ties into this canard that they give us of this self-governance thing. The idea that the government that rules over us and forces us to pay for it is somehow us. And as I've mentioned on my show a number of times, uh, one of the most striking uh, statements from anybody that that confirmed so many of the things that I and pro-peace people have been mentioning, Ron Paul would probably discuss this as well, using the term blowback, was the Times Square bomber um uh when they asked him how he pled he said guilty guilty uh a hundred times guilty and if the united states government continues to do what is what it is doing in the middle east more american civilians will die which sort of ties into the blowback idea and then that can be translated into what these politicians uh people like stefanek who called up the heads of mit and upenn and harvard and they you know they try to inflate what 
could be a, a, a minor problem, a problem on campuses, maybe growing, maybe inflamed intentionally. We don't know. But I'm not hearing a lot of young people calling for the extermination of Jews. I'm hearing for I'm hearing calls for a ceasefire, as two Palestinian women did outside of the Capitol building in front of uh, Senator Fetterman. And he had the gall, this power imbalance just manifestly showing itself. He pulls an Israeli flag out and waves it in front of these people whom he is forcing to pay taxes in order to turn them into weapons that will be supplied to Israel to possibly blow their relatives to pieces. That's what he doesn't seem to grasp. And then they say, well, you can't criticize the state of Israel because criticizing the state of Israel is criticism of the people of Israel. And that's anti-Semitic. So what they're telling us really is if if they're saying that, then that actually buys into the rationale that Hamas can, can kill civilians. It buys into the same rationale that the Times Square bomber said. If we cannot criticize the policies of a political entity, and therefore that is criticism of the people on the ground who might have no control over that political entity and might be, you know, a portion of them probably disagree, but they're not so-called represented, then they're, they themselves are tying them all in. As, as I mentioned on my show last night, Benjamin Netanyahu, as you know, more than once said that it was better for Israel to keep Hamas in power because they would be an oppositional force and they wouldn't negotiate. Therefore, they could use military force to keep pushing into Gaza, right? That was his plan. The United States supported him and Israel supported him. So what he actually did, he actually knowingly supported a group of people that he knew would put the people under him at greater risk of death, kidnapping, and all the things that they've been talking about since October 7th. Right, which he knew that. He supported need, them. Well, they need kinetic conflict to right. initiate the changes that they want to uh, implement. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, and it's, 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 it's something it's, Kennedy said. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. Right. 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 So that you're totally there is there is a, a school of thought about blowback. This is very much the Buchanan foreign policy. Uh, you know, he predicted a cataclysmic terror event on U.S. soil in his book, A Republic, Not an Empire, in 1999. I happen to agree with that, but I also think and if you want to go, go a little bit deeper, I think that those in power know that I think they help recruit the people that are going to carry out the terror. They help them. They funnel it so it can have the maximum. It's kind of like FDR making sure that all the the uh, the ships were lined up in a certain way, that, that, the, oh, yeah. the, that the commanders at Pearl Harbor didn't have the proper intelligence and weren't briefed on what was actually happening. They cracked the Japanese code called purple yeah. uh, months in advance. So we already knew that and, and said, let those people just twist in the wind. Not that they, you know, again, it's not the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor, but we didn't have to let them do that. And that's right. the, it was, it was for the effect. So it's, I think that's a, it, it probably uh, a modern, you know, this is one thing the uh, project for the new American century said in, in September of 2000, that they, we needed a Pearl, a new, new Pearl Harbor to initiate yeah. the, uh, the, the, again, not just the project for new American century, but that what John McCain would call rogue state rollback, which is really just a, a 
the class project of the military industrial complex and the neocons. So true. And, you know, I think in, in high school, when you hear things about, well, Roosevelt, uh, he, he embarked on an embargo of Japan because of the Sino-Japanese War, which was a terrible conflict and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of times those terms, you know, it's 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 you mentioned um, 1984, uh, COVID-1984. Right. And um, it, it is very much like the Ministry of Truth. It's 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 these terms become very soft. People get uh, normalcy bias. They become accustomed to these things and people don't question. Well, how is an embargo enforced? Oh, that's right. With military power. It's actually like it is an act of war. As I mentioned often, Rhode Island was not going to participate in the, um, the Constitution, in, in agreeing to the Constitution. And the other states threatened an embargo on Rhode Island to get them to vote. Um, so uh, that, that was to get the Constitution, which was a much more centralizing document that Alexander Hamilton loved, uh, to get that to usurp the Articles of Confederation, to get that central taxing authority to supply money for a central bank to get the borrowing authority. And we were off to the races from Alexander Hamilton to Henry Clay to Abraham Lincoln, right on through to Teddy Roosevelt, right on through to Hoover, FDR, all the way through to Johnson, Nixon, Clint, uh, Carter, all the rest, you know, Ford. It's just it's just been a, a series of dominoes ever since then, represented by people who just want political power. And they they know the the magic sauce that they can use, which is central bank currency. And and that embargo thing. Look at what they're doing now. You know, there we so we seized a Russian oligarch's yacht like, oh, did you give him trial? Did you give him due process? Because I think there's this thing called the Bill of Rights. I don't remember. It's it's, uh, you know, um, uh, I think it's number eight. Uh, no cruel and unusual punishment. How can you punish somebody if he hasn't been put on trial? What crime did he commit? It's absurd. They're going after guys from uh, from Hungary or Turkey because they're doing business with Russians. Oh, yeah, we're going to shut down your bank accounts. You've had oh, too much okay, to that, think. Guard. Yeah, you've you've that had too much me, to think. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to my uh, CBDC now. Ah. Oh. You, you criticized Nikki Haley there, huh, buddy? It's kind of like the, I was looking at the headlines on Drudge. So I, I know what the, the Central Intelligence Agency wants me to talk about, or at least the narrative. Thank, thanks thanks for making that easy. <laughs> they, they, they've, they've, curated, they've curated Operation Mockingbird for me every morning, and I go and take a look <laughs> at that. But it is, it is funny because I looked at the headlines, and you know they're taking Trump off ballots. And yeah. I thought, isn't it interesting that the people that scream the most about our democracy, our democracy, it's killing our democracy. They don't want democracy, which oh, is funny. Um, they don't like ballot access. Uh, they, they want people off ballots. Uh, they don't they, they don't want any any sort of uh, checks and balances on who can vote. So that kind of cancels out democracy, doesn't it? But right. it's the same people who also say, well, if we can just save one child. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if it's if it's for the children and then those people are for abortion on demand. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So or, just, or like Francis Collins. I just showed video of Francis Collins last night that was out there on Twitter. Again, you know, God bless people who are putting that information out there. Uh, you know, Francis Collins in a meeting with these sycophants just sitting there and he says, well, you know, when you're involved with public health, nobody questions the term public health. They just accept it. It's like, um, what do you mean? The health of what? What is that? I, I, could you break that down into the subunits of what you're talking about? You mean people, individual people? 
Oh, that's right. You were completely willing to sacrifice the rights of individual people for this gestalt amorphous term that you call public health, which you constantly were modifying and lying about over and over. Meanwhile, you gave outs to the pharma companies that completely manipulated their data sets and you put this stuff out and now we can't sue. Oh, thanks for being in power there, pal. It's just disgusting. It is the, well, I was just following orders thing. You know, it's like I was talking about Douglas Murray, the British commentator. And I was amazed. I was surprised. I have never, I don't think I've ever agreed with Sank Unger or Uger in my life uh, from the Young Turks. And I was showing, and I I, I replayed it on David's show. Um, I was showing this interview on that show Uncensored with Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan really kind of on balance being a little easier and, you know, not like the guy's going to be very tough at all, but um, being a little easier on Douglas Murray and Douglas Murray just throwing out insult after insult after insult, not addressing actual real information about numbers of deaths, quotes from people who had been Israeli hostages or the parents of Israeli hostages and things like that. Not just to bring it back to that conflict, but it is so inflamed and they're using it as leverage in such a strong way to try to target Syria and to try to target Iran. Right now, as you and I speak, these guys are meeting in Washington, D.C., in those marble halls that have all been paid for by taxpayers who could have spent their money on other things that they might have preferred. Now they're trying to figure out new ways to spend our money on more weapons to kill more people around the world. And Lindsey Graham wants to target Iran. Nikki Haley wants to target Iran. I think one of the few people out there who's actually maybe more in line with not doing so would be Vivek. And I'm, I'm not going to vote for anybody. You know, right. I, I really could care less. And I don't know about that man's background, but at least some of his statements uh, kind of bring up some echoes and, and they're sort of soft echoes of sort of the mindset of what Pat might have said or what uh, Ron Paul might have told people like, you know, maybe you want to look at this twice. This isn't a good idea. You know, you have to and, remember and, too, guard that like the Senate itself and the building there, these are sacred places. You know, this is the, this is the sacred, this is the sacred soil uh, this, you know, of, of our democracy. Guard, we have, it's very, very reverent. And matter of fact, you had some Senate staffer recently make a video there. I don't know if you know about the video that was made. Uh, I, the- I was looking for it on TikTok, but I guess Nikki Haley got rid of it. <laughs> well, it's very sacred. I mean, this is just <laughs> <laughs> it's it's and it's adult themed. It's very sacred. I, this is the stuff that you know the the evil. That comes out of of you ever seen that that meme where it has Obi Wan and, and Luke Skywalker and they're supposed to be I don't know whatever they're what the the I'm not a Star uh, a Star Wars uh, aficionado you yeah. probably you probably know more but they're looking over and they see it says it shows Washington D.C. It's like you'll never see yeah, yeah. Uh, more scum and villainy in a place more scum and, a more yeah, wretched I, hive of scum and villainy. We must. What, be what were they look? Was that Tatooine? What were they looking? Yeah, at? they were on Tatooine in front of the spaceport. Okay, see, that's spaceport. why you have Gar Goldsmith. Yeah, there you go. He'll, he'll, he's my Sherpa for pop culture. <laughs> but that, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Just stop thinking this is that this is sacred. That these people, this is like you know, the Hollywood for ugly people. You know, the, these politicians. I mean, your mailman is more important. It, it is it serves a greater function. Unfortunately, these people have lots of power. They have a, li- a very little conscience, and uh, and and they have unlimited monopoly money <laughs> from, yeah. from from yeah. the Luciferian banksters. So we're in a, we're in a, a fix there. But 
you know, when you got more and more people, uh, I think the, the popular consciousness shifting more and more towards uh, decentralization, individual liberty, this is happening now. It's weird. And it's mixed because we got all these psyops that trying to funnel people into dead ends politically. We, I know that it's very frustrating for us to watch because everybody's like, I'm with team so-and-so and I'm, you know, I stand with so-and-so. I'm like, okay, but that you're, you're captured in the fulcrum of the psychological operation at this yeah. time. Right. And I, right. I, I, I respect the fact that you have some values and you want to fight for something and stand for something. But again, we're almost there. We're getting there. You know, you talked about Fetterman, which I think he is a, and I, this is just me. I think he is literally a, a humiliation ritual. I think like he was put there to make you feel like the country's stupid and we can't, I mean, the people of Pennsylvania, this is the, this is the, what the best they can do. This guy is, I mean, wearing a hoodie and shorts into the Senate, which, because by the way, it's a sacred place. Uh, we don't yeah. want to do that. But exactly. I, I really, Doesn't he know he's supposed to walk in naked? What's wrong with him? <laughs> just, he, he could phone it in from, you know, wherever, just to have a, a, a screen representation of himself. He, he, you talking about him with the Israeli flag, right? Yeah. Um, th that, I think, that attitude, and the politics of yesterday, I think we're in are in steep decline. Um, you're talking about foreign lobbies and what people looking at their pocketbooks. You know, James Carville, who every once in a while is in the news, and he's famous for saying it's, it was the economy stupid in yeah. 1992. Yeah. Well, this is going to be so many things that hit people in their pocketbooks. Right? I mean, it's hearth and home, uh, stability crime, all the things that are happening when you see a culture decay and has been set for it's a, a controlled demolition, like our culture guard. Yeah. I think a lot of these politics of yesterday are just going to get th thrown away by the wayside. I think people will stop playing by those rules in the sense that, um, you know, I think you, you talk about Israel and the Israel, Israeli lobby, they have a powerful lobby, but APAC's not what it was 20 years ago. no, no, absolutely. And especially, I think, you know, regardless of what percentage of the college Gen Zers or, or under under them uh, might be uh, uh, actually, you know, really calling for extermination. I think that's very small. Uh, they and of course, now, if you even call for a ceasefire, then uh, people like Douglas Murray are equating that to uh, that you're calling for the extermination of the Jews, which is just uh, astounding, uh, just amazing. Uh, but um, I think a lot of those people on the college campuses, uh, it's it's a sort of nascent and it might not grow anymore, uh, but it is a nascent anti-war movement. And uh, it seems to be fostered by recognizing what's been going on with Israel and Gaza. And uh, contrary, amazingly, contrary to uh, what George Orwell pointed out is the general tendency of the, the vast majority of the public, which is to forget things from minute to minute. Remember those chocolate rations there, Winston Smith? Yeah, you're one of the only ones who remembers that the chocolate rations were decreased just two weeks ago. Now they're claiming they're going up. Well, they're not going up relative to where they were before two weeks ago. Um, but you're in the Ministry of Truth, so you're one of the few who sees how they're manipulating information. And uh, I mean, that's the opening of the book. You know, he's 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 like, wait a minute. I just heard. What are they talking about on the radio? We don't have as much chocolate as we did. You know, sort of like the employment numbers that they come out with every month and then they revise them downwards two weeks later, you know. Um, but 
uh, or inflation is down. No, no, no. It's still going up. It's just the uh, the rate of inflation has gone from 3.5% to 3.2% or something like that. You know, it's ridiculous. Uh, and it's compounded year to year. You know, it's a functional equation. And so uh, it's just, it's amazing. I, I think some of these, some of these younger people, uh, you know, they're starting to look into some of the, some of the background there. I, for some reason, I, I don't know, you know, whether that will expand or bleed over into other things and recognizing uh, the source, the money source, the, the borrowing source, but they seem to be very connected to recognizing at least the military industrial complex. Unfortunately, I think that also has been leveraged uh, by many uh, neo-Marxists in the United States throughout the 20th century uh, to get anti-war people to then attack the very concept of capitalism, which in the United States really has not been real capitalism. It's mercantilism. It's it's a, a form of fascism, government favors, uh, government corporate status, that sort of stuff, and um, handouts and things like that. So when they look at the banking industry, uh, I think many of them see it through glasses that are a little bit clouded where they don't recognize that if you actually had free trade without the political system that everybody tries to game, uh, then you wouldn't see this sort of um, situation with corporations taking advantage of people, trying to do rent seeking on people. So many people become very anti-free market when they think that the United States is a free market and they equate the military industrial complex as supporting the capitalist system and oh, we've got to bring it down. So a certain percentage of those people are going to tie in with the Marxists. They think they're going to do the right thing with, you know, um, 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 the anti-fascist movement, Antifa, when that was, of course, started in Stalin's Soviet Union to try to infiltrate Germany and turn it from a national socialist system to a world socialist Marxist system, uh, try to convince people to do that. So there are a lot of pitfalls along the way. But right now, I think people like Lindsey Graham and so on, they're shaking in their boots and they're trying to do anything they possibly can to generate a hot conflict with Iran and get people's minds off of what the Israelis have been doing in the Middle East. And I think that that's if they can expand this war to make it even more dangerous for American civilians, make more of their uh, friends and neighbors who are in the military, put them more at risk then that. I think they think that that will lend credence to their arguments that we've got to wipe out all these people and do this. And it's not just for the safety of Israel anymore. It's for all of our safety. That's where I think they're going. I agree with you. It's a great, it's a great synopsis and breakdown, by the way, my friend. Well, thanks. Um, we got, I got it from Nikki Haley. <laughs> Go start, start the apologizing now. Guard. You're, you're, you didn't revise your history. Uh, the revision wasn't revisionist enough. Uh, let me bring in uh, my friend Don Jeffries. Don, welcome back to the David Knight Show. Hey, how's it going, guys? How you doing? I Great know, to I see know you, that Don. you know Guard Goldsmith. Uh, I certainly do. And Don, I hope you got my email. I didn't get to see it until much later, so no, I apologize. No, no problem. No problem. Yeah. yeah, it's great to see you. And what a great writer. And uh, by the way, Tony, before I uh, before I head out, Don, I just want to let you know I have given your books to my sister, Valerie. And she oh, literally, man. she texted me yesterday. It's like, wow. So <laughs> well done. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, Guard. Well, she was just saying, wow, these are really terrible. No, no, just <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a while, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, she she really likes them. Thanks. Great. Thank yeah. you.
You got it. Tony, I'll leave you guys, uh, leave you guys to it. And uh, maybe I'll see you towards the end of the show. Thanks for having me for the first hour. And uh, I'll be listening. I appreciate it very much. And hats off to David Knight and the family. And by the way, I salute you with my David Knight pen available at the David Knight show store. So. <laughs> I, I, we didn't even plug. I know. We did I, a whole I, hour. I didn't do a commercial. I didn't plug. Uh, and that, that reminds me, guard the David ladies and gentlemen, it's how you can go and find all of David's shows, the links to his shows, the archives. You can buy it, mugs, hats, uh, shirts, pins, all the things that support David. You can make a direct contribution because again, we, we fill in for David, but we cannot replace him. Let's no just make that very clear. Uh, he is a, a, a treasure and, uh, his, his work ethic and all the research that he does his wisdom. We need him more than ever. So support the show, thedavidknightshow.com. And we'll talk a little bit about maybe later. And whenever I get to it, we'll plug uh, davidknight.gold. Somewhere in the show, I'll plug it. I've got stories on on uh, gold and, and uh, what's happening with de-dollarization. We'll maybe, when, when Don and I, we, we might get into that because Don wrote uh, Survival of the Richest. He knows a thing or two about uh, the casino economy, uh, sure. as, as I got that term from Don. Uh, but I, I appreciate you, God. Yeah, join in the third hour if, if you want. We're gonna yeah, have a, I'd love to. Thanks, panel. Tony. So. Great stuff. You guys are angels in my eyes. I really appreciate you. all the stuff you do, just like uh, David's family, too. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, God. Thank okay. you. Thank See you guys in a while. See you. Well, Mr. Jeffries, uh, I was supposed to host yesterday, folks. I uh, just uh, got a little rundown from holiday travels and uh, just being on the road and uh wasn't able to get it done uh don graciously just uh accepted to come back it was supposed to be on yesterday but uh don while i was traveling uh you had sent me a copy of your of your newest book i want to talk about that i'm because i'm fast there's a to set it up and i hope i'm doing it justice there's a scene in oliver stone's jfk and there's a figure played by john candy and he's a he's an attorney He's talking to Jim Garrison, who was the DA in New Orleans, and there's they're just kind of opening up uh, the involvement of, uh, and I believe we're talking about Clay Shaw, right, in, right. in the uh, assassination of, of JFK, and um, this this character, and I, I'm, it's off the top of my head, and we'll get into the, the name, but his he kind of plays a beatnik, and he's kind of mm -hmm. got that same beatnik language, and um, there's a woman in a red dress and he says, Oh, pop the bimbo in red. And that's where you, you get that. It's very, it's very unique language that he was using. And, uh, but the story is fascinating because it's really the subplot to Oliver Stone's JFK. And you were able to go and meet with the, that man's son and to form a relationship. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, in, you know, in real life and then just delve into that, that whole, which this is what Don does. If you haven't read his books, hidden history, uh, crimes and cover-ups in American uh, politics, 1776 to 1963, uh, survival of the richest. I mean, I, we, you got many, many books that I that I love, and uh, you have on borrowed fame. We've talked about on this show, but this is the newest one. I, I wanted to talk to you about it. I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, um, but I am fascinated by it because it does tie together a an association of you know clay shaw who went by the alias clay bertram right and he was yeah. he had the uh the international trade uh and intelligence connections operation mongoose all that was going on in that area uh, so tell me about what what got you to write the book and and what it what's the uh what's the theme 
Well, this one was co-written, by the way, with William Matson Law, my, my friend, and he's uh, an under-recognized JFK uh, researcher. He's written several books himself. He's a specialist on the uh, autopsy evidence. I, I don't think anybody knows more about it than he does. So tip of the hat to him. But uh, it was inspired by my friendship. Uh, actually, my brother. My brother was best friends with Dean Andrews III. And this is the son of Dean Andrews Jr., who you described was the beatnik lawyer. And he ended up being one of the crucial witnesses in the Jim Garrison case because uh, Dean Andrews Jr., the beatnik lawyer, uh, played by John Candy, on the um, late in the afternoon, early evening of the assassination, he was in the hospital and uh, he received a phone call from Clay Bertrand. And uh, he would later tell investigators about it. And uh, naturally, they were, and he, he was told by Bertrand he wa they wanted him to represent Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, he had done, who had been killed yet, he had done work for Oswald in a very small capacity for trying to get his dishonorable discharge changed, the military, and work on his, on his wife, who had come from Russia, her immigration status. So I think he became embroiled in that. And again, I, I explained in the plot what I think this is all about in New Orleans, but at any rate, he that phone call changed his life and changed young Dean's life as well. And he, part of the book is he Dean goes on the record for the first time, and he had been a family friend for years. I became close friends with him through my brother. We had him over the house many times uh, for family get-togethers and so forth. And uh, he was fascinating to me, and I was fascinated to him because he had never met you know one of the researchers that knew all this stuff about. He, I knew more about his dad related to the assassination than he did. So uh, we were mutually fascinated with each other. And this is the first time he really went on the record. William in, uh, interviewed him. We have the, the transcript of the interview there. And uh, he talked a lot of background stuff, which is uh, very fascinating. He touches on the camps, the anti-Castro camps, which he visited with his father and uh, his father's reaction and how behind the scenes, his, his, despite the fact he turned on Garrison to save his own neck and uh, you know, committed perjury. And did everything he could to stop Garrison because he saw all the other people being died. And he said, I don't want to be crushed. I like to breathe. I don't want to be crushed like a bug. And uh, but behind the scenes, uh, as we show in the book, he was extremely paranoid and he thought they were out to get him for the rest of his life. He was very he knew there was a huge conspiracy. So this book, uh, we wanted to concentrate on the New Orleans aspect of it because of Dean's connection. But uh, it's important because I call what I write about in the book, what we write about in the book is uh, the ground level plot the ground level conspirators. These are the people, this is where Lee Harvey Oswald was framed. He was framed in New Orleans. This is where he was set up. He was manipulated into this group. I believe like Jim Garrison did that at the time of the assassination, he was uh, an undercover agent for the FBI, CIA, Office of Naval Intelligence. We don't know. He had connections apparently with all these things, but somebody uh, instructed him, assigned him to infiltrate a plot to kill the president uh, with these characters. And I believe that's why uh, Almost alone among the researchers, I completely discount the Cuban connection, the assassination. I think it's a complete smokescreen. It's akin to what when you hear of Vivek Ramaswamy and other people in Trump and they, when they talk about the Saudi Arabian connection 9-11. It's kind of at, at that level. It's a smokescreen. And it's to divert attention away. But uh, Cuba had nothing to do with the assassination, I don't believe, because I think the proof is what happened after the assassination, which is nothing. Cuba died as an American political issue. There was no second Bay of Pigs. Uh, nobody tried to assassinate Castro, LBJ, and Nixon, or anyone else. Castro outlived them all. But critics continue to act as if this is significant. But these figures were undoubtedly there. And we talk about them in the book. Carlos Bringier, who's still alive, and so many others. Eladio Del Valle, who ended up with a hatchet in his head the same day David Ferry was probably murdered. He was uh, uh, Clay, who was uh, 
Garrison's main witness, really. But um, I think these figures, again, were they I go beyond Garrison. I think they may have all because they all had connections to intelligence, too. They may have all been working against each other. They may unbeknownst. They may have all been told the same thing. Hey, infiltrate this plot. And I, I personally think that's probably what happened because they all acted like that. And um, at any rate, Oswald got sucked in there. He was set up to be the patsy. And I think Dean Andrews Jr., the lawyer we talked about, I think he was manipulated as well. It may be very well have been why Oswald was sent to him, you know, for these legal matters and why he's, you know, Andrews specialized during that summer of 1963 and so many what he called the gay caballeros, you know, a lot of these uh, anti-Castro Cubans who, why there were so many gays connected to this case, I don't know, but there unquestionably was. And for what I, you know, people can speculate on that all they want, but especially for 1963, there are an awful lot of, of, of gay connections here what, for whatever it means. But so in, in this book, we, um, I, I, I went through uh, Harold Weisberg's Oswald New Orleans, who it's an underappreciated book, it was written, Jim Garrison got a lot of his research on that. Uh, we, I was able to track down for the first time, we, we talked to the family of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's best friend in high school, which is Ed Vogel. And uh, he I'd always thought he had been killed because he died very mysteriously in his early 30s at the Alvin Ochsner Clinic. And Alvin Ochsner was another guy who had connections not only to Clay Shaw, and uh, we talk about that in the book, but he had connections to a lot of third world dictators, a lot of the CIA, obviously CIA connections. They, they would go to his clinic to get treatment. And Ed Vogel, Oswald's best friend in high school, went there and died very mysteriously. And uh, I was able to become friends with his sisters who went on the record for the first time. I won't put any spoilers out there, but I have their picture in the book. And, uh, you know, we have lots lots of interesting uh, things. You know, so people will see the background here. And this is, again, these are, I, I don't want anyone to think these are not the real conspirators other than Clay Shaw. I think Clay Shaw, and we go into his background, it goes all the way back to Operation Paperclip in World War II. He had connections everywhere into everything. Permandex, which, you know, may well have been an international assassination Bureau. If you saw the film The Parallax View with Warren Beatty in the 70s, that was kind of based on permanent permandex. Uh, you had people like there, and one of uh, Hitler's uh, old aides was involved with permandex. Uh, so was the former president of Hungary. You know, lots of lots very powerful people that that uh, Clay Shaw was involved with. He was no mere. They tried to paint him as a kindly philanthropist, and uh, he was hardly that. This, this this is the. I think people will see. The, what these are all people being manipulated, Jack Ruby, David Ferry, all these people to varying degrees. I think they were pawns themselves, patsies to some degree, uh, to set up the real patsy. And they were un, probably not even un, unwittingly doing it. But I think Clay Shaw was probably the conduit. He was probably the connection between that ground level plot and the people above him who were the real players, the people in the Pentagon and the CIA or where, wherever this plot came from. But it came from far above any anti-Castro Cubans or rogue CIA agents, as, as they like to say. And there's nothing rogue about this. This was this was done at the top levels of the power structure. When you say the, the Cuban connection, uh, you're referring to the researchers uh, implicating the anti-Castro. Yeah. People. Is that what you're So that if you'll watch the movie JFK, you know, they have Operation Mongoose, of yeah. course, uh, Kennedy didn't send air cover during the Bay of Pigs. Uh, then, of course, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Kennedy trades the Jupiter missiles in Turkey. You know, there's that back channel communique with Khrushchev and all that. Was there, that upset the Central Intelligence Agency and the hardliners? You're right, though. It is interesting if that is the case. Why 
you know, Kennedy was assassinated, then why didn't we, there, it was free. It was a free for all after that. I mean, you, you yeah. could have had a very hard line anti Castro, uh, you know, president in LBJ, I'm sure he could be swayed easily, but that didn't happen. Uh, what, what do you think? Why is it that, that, uh, so many of these figures were in the anti-Castro <laughs> orbit, though, like with yeah. Operation Mongoose and all of that that was happening, all the stuff that was happening in New Orleans. What, what do you think that was? Well, yeah, I think it was all part of the uh, I mean, I don't know how far in advance this uh, this plot was. But we do know that uh, J. Edgar Hoover was asking about Lee Harvey Oswald in 1960. There's a memo out there that he said, you know, we're concerned that Oswald is being impersonated, of course. In this book, we talk about how he was not only impersonated in Dallas and people, more people are familiar with that, the gun range and driving the car and lots of people who saw someone who claimed to be Oswald, but clearly wasn't because he was documented to be in somewhere else at the time, work and places like that. But uh, he was being impersonated in New Orleans as well. And we go through that, how we, we have a, a, a transcript of an interview with Ann Dishler, who William Law, my co-author, became friends with. She's deceased now, but she worked for Jim Garrison for a while. And she talks about how one of the things she was investigating was all these Oswald sightings in New Orleans, which a lot of them are unknown to people. I mean, one time at a bar, he made a big production of throwing up on the bar and getting real drunk or somebody claiming to be Oswald. He was, so he's attracting attention and throwing that Oswald name out there. Why they tied it into Cuba? And again, I think it's just a, a smokescreen to try to say that, uh, you know, this is what because Kennedy clearly was uh, going for a rapprochement with uh, Castro at the time of his death. He, he didn't want to, and, and they continue. And the lie, there's so many layers to this, Tony, where uh, the lies continue to be pushed that, that the Kennedy brothers were behind the attempts on Castro. And, uh, and there's a whole subsection of people out there say, well, yeah, RFK, you know, he, he felt so terrible at the assassination because what he'd been doing came back and blew up in his face. And, you know, he, he was, up, he was uh, irate. When he found out what they had been, especially because he had been the only uh, administration, the only administration ever to target the mafia. When he found out the CIA had been using the mafia in this, he was really, you know, apoplectic, and uh, he was very bitter. His later Jack Anderson would drop a column about it when RFK was running for president again, try to stop him, and he was incensed. He told his aides, "You know, this is ridiculous. I tried to stop it. We wouldn't have done it." So. Um, what they were doing and their comical attempts to kill Castro. I mean, I have to think the CIA could have killed him if they really wanted to, but I mean, you know, putting, uh, you know, put, put poison in his beard or something and his toothpaste. I mean, just really get smart type of stuff. Uh, I, I think that if it even happened, you know, this could all be myth. We don't know, but we do know that, uh, that, what happened afterwards, if you look at the motivation for something, a crime of this magnitude, the fact it's still covered up, what changed afterwards? For some people said he was killed because of civil rights. That didn't change at all. Civil rights legislation went through, and, and we've had several other civil rights legislation since then. That clearly wasn't the motive. You know, segregationists didn't have the power over the media to, to still be covering it up 60 years later. Anti-Castro people, if they, again, if they wanted a second day of pigs, they had to have considered the assassination a miserable failure because they got nothing. As I said, Cuba died as a campaign issue. So, But what did change? Vietnam certainly changed. And I think that's always can be looked at as one of the primary motivators because uh, JFK, before the assassination, had uh, the month before put out uh, this National Security Action Memorandum 263, which uh, started the process of withdrawal from Vietnam. And then Oliver Stone does make a lot of references to this in the movie JFK. However, the day of the assassination, I mean, the day before the assassination, uh, McGeorge Bundy, who was the national security advisor to Canada, you think like a, a Henry Kissinger to JFK, 
Uh, he wrote National Security Action Memorandum 273. Uh, of course, JFK never saw it. If JFK had seen it, he would have been fired on the spot. Uh, he wrote this again. He had, and so if people want to know prior minds, I think that George Bundy had to be a conspirator in the White House, just logically, because he wouldn't have written a memo like that, which flip-flopped the Vietnam uh, strategy and said, no, you know, we have to help. We, which is what JFK had said. No, we just, he had just this is recently too. So, I think those are one of those calling cards, a telltale sign. And so, what happened after the assassination? Clearly, uh, what JFK wanted, and he was on the all troops out by 1965, and uh, it's it's their war and all that stuff. And he told all his aides this, but that changed dramatically because after the assassination, uh, the, the escalation began. So, if you want to, that's one key thing where you look at it, okay, if they wanted to kill him and stop something, that worked. If you want to look at his comments about abolishing the CIA, he, he talked about actually abolishing the CIA. Imagine that now. Yeah. And shattering it to a thousand pieces to the wind. Yeah, just think about that. So obviously after the assassination, that certainly changed because the CIA just got stronger. And um, the Federal Reserve, he was trying to rein in the Federal Reserve. A lot of people think he had issued the silver certificates. That's kind of unclear, but regardless of Federal Reserve's power was intact. The mafia, no one ever targeted the mafia again. Richard Dixon completely ignored the mafia. And Israel, you know, at the time of the assassination, that's that's more relevant now today, is that JFK was the first president to confront Israel, the first, really the only modern president. Uh, and and would he, uh, he was very incensed behind the scenes and went invo involved in heated exchanges with David Ben-Gurion, the president of Israel, over them developing nuclear weapons. Obviously, that changed because we saw in 1967, uh, the USS Liberty was attacked by Israel and was covered up for decades. And Lyndon Johnson was the one who led that cover up. He was very pro-Israel. Obviously, Nixon, for every, everyone down to Jimmy Carter was a little more even-handed. But so these are all things that that if you look at, okay, what changed with uh, with JFK's death, all that did. But Cuba didn't in terms of they didn't change the way they wanted to. In fact, they just left it alone and Castro, again, as I said, outlived them all. So I just look at that's just, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I just think if you look at you look at it uh, logically, uh, that's the way things turned out. Well, that that is interesting. I go back to his American University speech, June 1963. If you if you want to know why the deep yeah. state murdered JFK, yes. my opinion, it's right there. It's yeah. one of the most beautiful uh, cases ever made of respecting human life and striving towards peace and that peace isn't profitable. You know, it's, it, there is, there is a, it's a higher calling because it's antithetical to all the things that, that drive so much of the corruption. And, uh, that, that speech is beautiful. You know, we all, we yeah. all breathe the same air. We all cherish yeah. our children's future and we're all mortal. He's speaking about the the Soviet Union, you know, Reagan yeah. would later call them the evil empire one time you know, <laughs> yeah. in the early 1980s. But even Reagan, you know, by the end of the 80s was walking arm in arm with uh, Gorbachev and Red Square and uh, mm -hmm. invoking God and, and, and prayer. So, I mean, it, you, you can juxtapose that to the leadership we have now, Don, and you and I talk about this every week. And it's so it, the psychopathy is so it's so it's so insane that the lust for war both parties, both major parties, just driving us towards war for different ends, different reasons, but the military industrial complex survives. And I think that really is something that JFK was, was reigning in, or at least yeah. the rhetoric. And I think it was real that he 
believed in those things that he believed in peace. He wanted to, I think he wanted to leave that, that sort of legacy. And he'd been, and you've written about this, but he, he'd been given his, his last rights, what, three times yeah. by the time he was in his early forties, you know, he'd been on death's door. Of course you have PT one Oh nine in the Pacific and his boat was, his boat was cut in half. Yeah. He dragged, you know, is one of his, uh, his, yeah. his crewmen, uh, yeah. his teeth, yeah. you know, in the water. Um, here's another example. Yesterday I bought two, um, uh, old notes. One's a $20 bill. I read this earlier. The, the $20 bill really gives it away, Don. I, it's in fine print. They don't put these on the new $20 bills, but yeah. the, the, it says that it's redeemable in lawful money. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Which means that what it's supposed to be is a certificate. This isn't money. Yeah. It's a certificate. So you can get money, which is they're talking about gold. Yeah. But here's something really interesting. Okay. This is a 1963 $5 bill. Okay. The reason I bought that, they only made them like that one time. Yeah. Okay. It's not a federal reserve note. There's no yeah. federal reserve stamp on this note. And this came direct from the treasury. And the reason it did is because it was issued by JFK. He, he wanted direct notes from the treasury. So he was like, you talked about the federal reserve and his executive order on silver. Uh, that those things are, are reasons to be suspicious yeah. of, you know, the financial sector being involved in, in his death. And, and it is I, the irony of ironies. The only two presidents to ever print yeah. <laughs> notes direct from the treasury and Lincoln's on this one. Uh, JFK is the other. Yeah. Uh, they both got shot in the head in public as Jim Mars, uh, would reference <laughs> all the time. So it is yeah. something not, not that I even agree with greenbacks or anything, but I think yeah. the, the taking the power away from the federal reserve. That is, there's an argument there. So I, I, yeah. I agree with you on, I think that it's kind of a, a ruse to say that it was all about Cuba or something like that. I think he'd made a lot of those, you know, <laughs> Alan Dulles, you know, a lot of these, uh, the, yeah. this, the CIA and the Bay of pigs failure and all that, just exposing that. I think that had something to do with it, but I don't, I don't think it was just these crazy uh, Cuban connections. I agree with that. Yeah, no, and you, you referenced the uh, the American University speech, which was June in 1963, and uh, I think he signed his death warrant with that. I, th I think it's the greatest speech ever delivered by an American president, and uh, people would just read it, and you've never heard any other politician talk about that. I mean, he wanted, what, what do I mean by peace? Not, not peace in our time, but peace for all time. I mean, he was he was he was raging against the concept of war itself, and he was the first person, uh, pol political figure I'd ever seen that demanded that we look at our enemies. At that time, it was the Soviets. In human terms, he said, you know, they, 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 you know, they love their children and cherish their future, too. And we don't look at that. I mean, I've, I've argued with people back in the day when they're talking about Nazis and people like that. I said, well, you know, these are human beings. They weren't human. You know, it's like I said, you know, do you think they didn't love their children and they can't see they, they can't see the enemy in human terms. And uh, they especially when I'm talking about the leaders, but I'm talking about the average soldier. That you know that uh, are, are fighting for uh, obviously greater forces, but JFK was. You're right about the Bay of Pigs, and he got off to the. I mean, people realize what a, as uh, Fletcher Prouty used to say. You know, he say he can't tell you what 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 reverberations went through the Pentagon over this. And I think uh, Oliver Stone has that in his film with uh, Donald Sutherland playing Mr. X, who was based on Fletcher Prouty, who was uh, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and saw all this 
from an inside view. But the idea that after the Bay of Pigs, which Kennedy was shocked by because, he again, he was a naive young president. He'd been planned in the Eisenhower administration with Richard Dixon as the political uh, connection there as a vice president. Uh, total CIA operation. And they assured him, and we would see this later with Iraq and places like that, is uh, that, uh, oh, the Cuban, when we get there, they're going to instantly, you know, they'll welcome us. I and mean, like we would lead her here with the rock. They'll throw flowers at us and welcome us. It's exact same kind of philosophy. They said, well, when they see the Americans, you know, it's coming in there. Well, man, they're going to, the entire people will just, they, they'll run from this Castro guy. So uh, Kennedy was, you know, he was, a, he had Cold War spirit in him, as his inaugural dress would, would say. So at the time he thought, okay, well, this, I guess they, he, he was naive. Maybe he thought they knew what they were doing, but and so they blamed him for not providing air air tower. He never thought he'd have to do that. And he said, "No, this." He looked and saw it was a disaster. I'm not going to make it worse. So uh, they never forgave him for that, and he never forgave them. And he fired Alan Dulles, who was a director of the CIA, right after it. He fired Richard Bissell, who was the second in command, and he fired uh, General Charge Cabell, General Charles Cabell, who was the third in command, and whose brother Earl Cabell was the mayor of Dallas in November of 1963. And later we found that one of the subsequent releases had been a longtime CIA asset himself to no one's surprise. But just imagine, as, as, as Prouty said, the reverberations throughout the military industrial complex and the intelligence establishment, when uh, he fired the top three people in the CIA, he clearly, even though he very, very uh, admirably accepted blame, he said, look, it's my fault. I'm the, I'm the responsible officer of the executive branch. And uh, I think he said something like, you know, they said the, the thing is that uh, uh, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. And, you know, which he, JFK always had this great, no other president has ever come up with these great lines from history that, that people that people need to remember. <clears throat> but uh, so when he fired them, that was, and, and Dulles already hated, and people can't, and I, I'm, I think, single-handedly trying to restore the reputation of old Joe Kennedy, <clears throat> who I think was a, a great American one of the great figures of the 20th century behind the scene, and he's been smeared relentlessly. But um, one of the things he did, and I found this out from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in his book, uh, uh, American Values, where he talked about, I had, had no idea that Joe Kennedy Sr. had sat on a commission in the 1950s to study the CIA. And he was the most vocal critic on that commission. And he said at that time, we've got to rein them in. We've got to take all their power away except for strict foreign intelligence gathering. And uh, Dulles was the director at that time. So you can imagine the antipathy Dulles felt already for the Kennedy family. So many people hated the old man anyhow. But, but I mean, <clears throat> you know, Joe Kennedy Sr. had been one of the foremost anti-war act activists of his time. He was not only, as RFK Jr.'s point out, he was an, he was an anti -war, uh, a World War I anti-protester as a young guy. And that's where he first clashed with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. At the two at the time was assistant secretary of the Navy and a typical Lindsey Graham type chicken hawk that was pushing everywhere he could while not going anywhere near any battlefield himself. And uh, they actually clashed night crimes and cover ups. I talked about an early clash they had. And uh, so later he drew the ire of FDR and Winston Churchill and, and everyone else. I mean, they all JFK's father had all the right enemies. And he made he made a beautiful anti-war speech when he was at the America First Committee, as so many other great Americans were of that day uh, before Pearl Harbor, <laughs> when he uh, he said, I would like the parents of the world to consider and, and just come up with one good reason for your child to go die in a war. And I thought I thought that was that's that's just a it, that really distills it down to what it is. 
And uh, so I, I have great admiration for him. He came from good stock. You mentioned we talked about the the notes that weren't Federal Reserve notes. Uh, again, behind the scenes, Joe Kennedy Sr. was one of the earliest critics of the Federal Reserve. He knew all about that. I can't believe when the, when they were eating dinner and we've heard all the tales about the Kennedys, how they discussed current events and all this stuff. And they would they would um, they would come up with their socialist views that they were learning in school. And the, the old man would counter them with capitalism and so forth. I can't believe they didn't discuss the Federal Reserve. So I'm pretty sure they were well steeped in that. And by so I don't think, is that why, you know, JFK did what he did with the silver certificates, which as you pointed out is what, what Lincoln did. And you know how I feel about Lincoln, but he did print the greenbacks. And I've, I've tried for years to, uh, <clears throat> to, to verify the quote that, that, that conspiracy people uh, from a London newspaper, but it's never specific enough. There's no exact date. So I don't know if they said it or not, but it's something like if this, if this terrible policy, which has occurred, uh, you know, is allowed to transpire. This will be the collapse of everything or something. But it's, it's a very dire quote that basically says we have to assassinate him. I, but I don't know. Again, I, you know, I want to source things. And so I don't know if that really is a legitimate quote or some, you know, some conspiracy guy made it up and everybody, cause that happens sometimes, but uh, there's no denial that, that what, uh, what JFK did was doing at the time of assassination. He had, a, he had lots of people that were mad at him, lots of powerful figures. So that's why there's so many, you know, if this was a Agatha Christie mur a murder mystery, there's so many legitimate suspects. But as you know, I believe there's a group above it all and Illuminati, whatever you want to call it. And I think these, this is where the decision was made, I believe. Well, I want to go back to the New Orleans connection <clears throat> and then your, of course, your new book. I want to put it up on the screen too, Don. Um, it's up here real quick. I, I go back to the the phone call to Dean Andrews Jr. Uh, yeah. On was it be November twenty second, nineteen sixty three? Yes. Just after the assassination. Yeah. Now you referenced earlier in the conversation that he had actually been a an attorney for Oswald before yeah. to work on his yeah. honorable discharge and some of his military and his citizenship or what? It, and yeah. Marine, Marine Oswald, right? Yeah, yeah, he had he had been he'd done some little work, and he, uh, as he pointed out many times, Oswald still owed him twenty five bucks, and so he he was a little irate about that. But uh, yeah, he had uh, he had done some, and, and, and again, I just look at that skeptically because I think I don't think it's an accident that he because he, he again he was connected to those same people in New Orleans, so I don't think it's any accident that they came into each other's orbit. Uh, for all I know, Oswald, as part of his assignment, might have been told, "Hey, uh, go to this guy." He's one of our guys, you know, he'll, he'll, you know, just, and, uh, you know, have him say you want some help on, on the imp or something. Cause again, I think everything about Oswald was orchestrated. So the fact that he was able to, at the, uh, the heart the beginning, you know, the uh, middle of the cold war that he was able to uh, come back in without being de even debriefed by the, by the CIA or anything the, at the height of the cold war, uh, that he did have a Russian bride. I think these things are all, uh, certainly suspicious and, uh, so I think he, it, it, at this point, everything, all his moves may have been orchestrated. So I think he was probably told, go to this guy. Uh, what Dean Andrews Jr. was told, I don't know, but he was a, he had lots of interesting connections himself. So he may have just, maybe he was doing something, uh, again, for some intelligence agency as well. I, I think Dean the third has said, said that he thought he was uh, an asset rather than an agent or something, but he thought his father had some connection. So he's, he's called uh, the day of the assassination yeah. by Clay Shaw. Clay, Clay Bertrand. Bertrand. Yeah. Right. Clay. Which is okay. And so he does he identify 
who this is, who he's talking to early on? Does he does he make the connection? Well, well, he 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 knows. He said Bertrand had sent him people before, and again, maybe this is part of the thing. He's sending these uh, people to, to Dean Dean Andrews for a reason. But he uh, he started backtracking, and if people could, can look at his Warren Commission testimony, and we put it as an appendix. We have several appendices in the book, and one of them is Dean Andrews' Warren Commission testimony. You have to read it because I mean I I've read these you know these twenty six volumes. <laughs> Very few of us have, but they're they're mostly really boring. And especially the testimony is really boring for the most part. Dean Andrews uh, uh, Jr., his testimony is the Beatles of the Warren Commission testimony. It's no, he's number one. There's no question. It's the most interesting. Uh, you'd be fascinated, but kind of the beatnik lingo. But in it, he's, uh, you know, he he basically brings up uh, one of the things I want to do is find out the real person who killed the president. You can see like the Warren Commission counsel saying, what? You, know, like, you don't think it was Oswald? I know good and well it wasn't Oswald. And then, and then he talks about how uh, he's the first one to bring up the Maggie's drawers thing about that Oswald, you know, got Maggie's drawers when he was shooting at the, that he was that bad of a shot. And uh, he he talked about Bertrand. And so the other thing is I want to find out who Bertrand is. And uh, then later when he started getting, you know, probably getting threats, but certainly when he started seeing people dying, other people dying, he started backtracking and he, you know, he described, Bertrand like Shaw early on tall and said, but then later he claimed he was shorter and all this stuff. So he, he, he became ridiculous in terms of, and we have a lot of uh, his, his fluctuating testimony in the book. He was frankly became a ridiculous witness, but he, uh, as long as he was willing to say something that discredited Garrison NBC news later used him for their attack piece uh, on Garrison, which was uh was basically run by a guy named Walter Sheridan, who had been an assistant to RFK in the Justice Department. And I don't know what kind of a plant he was, but it certainly sounds like, uh, you know, they may, we, we recently found out Mark Meadows, for instance, was a plant inside <laughs> Trump's White House. He was, an, he was an undercover informant working as the chief of staff of Trump. So this guy could have easily had been a, a plant back in 1960, in the early 1960s, working for RFK's Justice Department because he became a reporter for NBC News just for that one story. As far as I know, Walter Sheridan's investigative journalist career began and ended with Garrison's investigation. He was front and center there, and he was he was tape recorded, and I don't know why nothing happened to him, trying to bribe uh, witness Perry Raymond Russo, who was a taxi cab driver who later, eventually, when they killed all his other witnesses, became one of Garrison's most important witnesses. And he was ridiculed because he, he had some issues. He hated the Kennedys, by the way. But um, he... he basically recorded Sheridan saying, you know, hey, we'll move you out to California. We'll set you up and all. I mean, basically, you know, telling we'll set you up if you lie for us. And uh, if you say what we want you to say. So this was uh, Dean Andrews Jr. is caught in the midst of all this. And you have to wonder what, you know, what he was thinking. And, and so he was naturally terrified because he saw the other people dying. As he said, you know, I like to breathe in his colorful language. And uh we have some quotes from him in there. He's just he's just interesting to to, to hear, and his son Dean the Third has has a little of that too, you know, not quite, but you can see in his interview he he kind of he's very colorful about describing things. You know, he'll he'll just kind of say things in a unique way, and I, that's why I've always loved uh, talking to him. But I think that um, Dean Andrews Jr. was a was a pivotal figure here because without without uh, Garrison knowing that because Garrison knew Dean Andrews. As, as his son, Dean Third said, you know, he, Garrison would call his house regularly and answer, hello, young Dean, you know, and he'd, he'd answer the phone. And uh, he used to see him at the New Orleans Athletic Club and so forth together. 
And uh, so I, I think that when when Garrison read his because he started reading at the, at the behest of uh, Russell Long, you know, he was Long's son. At the, he was the first one who, who told him, hey, you know, something not right about the Warren Commission is he's played by Walter Matthau and, and, uh, and Albert Stone's JFK very memorably. And uh, once he started reading the testimony, what really jumped out at him was Dean Andrews' testimony because he knew Dean. He was a friend of his. And uh, when he saw what he was saying, hey, I want to find out who the real guy that killed the president. I know it wasn't Oswald. And especially when he talked about that phone call, because, again, uh, Garrison found out about this stuff, you know, years later. He was initially interested briefly because of David Ferry, uh, who, who had uh, you know, been curious figure in New Orleans. And he did question him early on the assassination, but he, he kind of dropped it for a while. And then it was that conversation with Russell Long. And uh, then when he started reading the testimony, Dean Andrews' testimony jumped right in. That's why, you know, the, the, the title of the book comes from that, that memorable lunch encounter, which I don't know that he actually said pipe the bimbo in red. And young Dean said he never heard his father say that, but he said so many things. And it may have been just colorful language that, uh, that uh, Oliver Stone made up. But uh, regardless, that, that lunch was about that, where Dean is discovering, hey, you know, what, 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 I mean, uh, um, uh, Garrison is discovering, hey, you know, what, what is, what's up with this? You know, what are you talking about here? And you can see in that conversation, you know, I, you know, that, that he's already scared and he's telling Jimbo, they can, you know, they can get you like, squash you like a bug and all that stuff. So um, he's really a figure that has not been examined. I don't think has scrutinized the way he should. I mean, he's not, he wasn't, in, you know, he wasn't a real conspirator, but he was somebody again that was used and manipulated like Oswald was for a lesser role. But, um, and the book also, I think shows what, what happens to people that are involved in this. You see what happened through Dean the third. And I, I, we had his mother who's still alive. I think she's 95 years old and lives in New Orleans still. Uh, we had her over at our house for dinner years ago, a couple, you know, maybe 20 years ago or so. And uh, it's the first time she had really agreed to talk about it to anyone. And I, I think maybe I halfway convinced her because you know, her, her basically her philosophy was that he, her husband was crazy. He's nuts. And he did kind of go crazy after the assassination. But from their perspective, you see, this is a very respectable family. With the, the guy was uh, Dean Jr. was the president of the New Orleans Jazz Festival. Uh, he knew a lot of the prominent people. He was they were celebrated in high, the high society of New Orleans. Had a good life. Dean the third was was bound for the same uh, career. He was in law school, and, and all of this all that was shattered. Uh, Dean just recently, a couple months ago, lost. He, you know, we commiserated because he, he, my brother was his best friend, and I lost him. And uh, he, his brother, his younger brother, uh, was probably the biggest victim of his father being involved in this because he he just turned to drugs. And after he just died a couple months ago, but it was after a lifetime of, of struggling with drug addiction. So, but all this, you know, if if Dean hadn't gotten that phone call in the hospital. Uh, it, Probably, as he said, you know, I, I'd have a lot of money now. And said he's, you know, I go over and see him, and he's he's living in Section Eight housing. Uh, he's not doing well. He's confined to a wheelchair. I go, we go over and I take him out to lunch at uh, at uh, the Chili's. It's right next to him there, and he thinks that's a big deal because he doesn't get to go out other than that. But his life would have been way different. I think he, you know, he would have been an attorney. He would have been financially set. He probably would have never met my brother, so I would have never known him. But. Uh, it's it just you know it shows in microcosm and that that's why his wife I'm sure resents it because she it, it took something really good away from her, you know she was living in that orbit and, and enjoying the good life and instead they became 
you know, part of this, um, the JFK assassination quagmire and uh, her husband became discredited and ridiculed by everyone. So it's a, it's a character study and what can happen from people that just are even associated with these events. And the new New Orleans connection itself is so intriguing to me because that, that centers around garrison. It's almost like it's tailor made to be investigated. (laughs) It's all being done right there. Yeah. And then you got you got intelligence and you got the FBI. There's that f- famous scene in, in JFK where uh, Garrison, you know, Kevin Costner, he's looking at all the buildings like, well, there's where Oswald stayed. There's the apartment where Oswald stayed. And, been there. and then there's Guy Bannister's office right underneath that with the FBI. And across yes. that, oh, and I, it's the Office of Naval yeah. Intelligence. And then there's the CIA back in these. So he's like in November 1963 or the year, it was so. You know, it's funny, you, you, court historians uh, are hilarious to me now. Like they, they don't, I, I, it has to be on purpose because you're not going to be invited to the cocktail parties. You're not going to be celebrated uh, if you start making actual connections of dots. Yes, yes. But it, it, it's so overwhelming. I know you've been doing this your, your entire life. You've been researching uh, JFK. A lot of people that don't know you, like if you read about Don, folks, it's amazing. Like he... He was part of Mark Lane's investigation in the early 1970s. You actually went in and saw the uh, the and got to hold the Monlech yeah. Carcano rifle at right, the right. Smithsonian. I mean, yeah. at 19 years old. So Don's yeah. been doing this a long time. Like he's a legit researcher, historian. He wrote the book Hidden History. It's the reason I know him. I read his book. And mm-hmm. um, anyway, you look look at this, and it's just so overwhelming. Like look at the intricacies of what we just discussed in the last 40 minutes about uh, Dean Andrews, uh, Clay Shaw, Clay Burcham, uh, Jim Garrison. It's not for nothing, right? This they weren't. Again, I wonder if they were surprised probably were because these, these mm-hmm. things are probably uh, decompartmentalized in so many ways. You really can't see who's doing what. I wonder if they were surprised it was Oswald and that's why yeah. they were like knee jerk, like get him an attorney so we can, you know, cause that would be a way to contain spillover. Like if you want to, mm-hmm. you want to put somebody around him that would stop any kind of like interrogation or yeah, there's something, some, so we're talking like on the, have you been able to run a timeline on when he got that phone call and like what? Yeah, it was, it was uh, again, I, I think again, because of Dean's recollections or uh, uh, Dean, the junior's recollections were kind of hazy. And it, well, also in the book, this is the first time Dean the third reveals uh, suspicious things that were happening to his father in the hospital. This is again, I don't want to put a spoiler, but it's never been out there by any researcher. And it's a reason to wonder exactly what was going on with him in the hospital. So he's a little hazy on it, but I, I think it was, you know, maybe around dinner time, something like that, that, uh, that he received the call. And of course, later, well, what happened is they would try to blame the drugs he was on and that he had imagined it, hallucinated it. And then he would later say, yeah, I guess I must, you know, because again, he was, he was saying whatever they wanted him to say at that point, because he was trying to, to stay alive. But you're right. I, I, most researchers don't question why he got that call. Uh, because on the surface of it, it makes no sense because if you have a, con- a conspiracy and they're going to kill, they know they're going to eliminate the suspect. And why, why are they worried about getting him an attorney? Because the, the, the subtext here is that Oswald was asking for an attorney constantly. That's one thing he was saying in public. I do request someone to come forward and give me legal assistance. And uh, but you have the American Bar Association. This is how big the cover up went. And I talked about this in Hidden History. 
they sent a representative to meet with him and supposedly told the representative, no, I'm, I'm fine. And, and every, every public chance he got, he said, I need a lawyer. So that had to be a lie. So the American Bar Association is, is involved in this. The ACLU, these people are involved in it because they're saying, ah, he really didn't want a lawyer. He just, for some reason, he's saying it publicly. But so if you're assuming that all these people, except Shaw, again, Bertrand is the one who made the call. So I can only speculate, but what were the people at the top telling Shaw to do this, telling Burton to do this? Hey, you know, let's, let's get Dean Andrews over there. And, and, uh, and, and maybe, you know, I, I don't think Shaw knew everything because then later we talk in the book about the very curious way Clay Shaw died, you know, long after his trial. And you talk about when a neighbor saw an ambulance pull up to his house and take a body out and, and go inside the house. I mean, that's a, you, you know, what kind of these people play for real. Uh, that's what happened to Clay Shaw. So he wasn't around that long to question either. But um, so these, um, we can really only speculate, but I agree. I mean, the phone call doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either, but uh, it obviously it happened for whatever reason. And uh, it's the same thing with Oswald's arrest in the theater. There's so many questions about that. You have witnesses that saw an arrest, somebody being taken out of the back while he was going out of the front. So there's so many things, questions about who was in the theater and why, it, you know, you had really big shots, high-ranking police officials and federal agents that were at the scene of that theater to go after someone who had supposedly snuck into a theater without paying for a ticket. At the time, the president had just been assassinated. And, of course, the person, the, the clerk, the cashier said, that, no, she didn't see anybody sneaking with that cash. But it didn't matter. You know, that's, that's, that's what he did. So lots about this to question. And this, this is the minutia that, you know, has taken over my life for a long time where I talk about all these things. We don't have much time left, but I wanted to tell you a story uh, about the JFK assassination, just my own personal history with it. I, I had a good friend of mine. Uh, I ran for Congress in 2013, 2014 against uh, the the oldest living member of Congress to ever cast a vote. It was the last World War II veteran in Congress. I didn't think he was going to run again, right, but I, right. he was my congressman from the time I was born. Like he he just gotten elected. Uh, his name was Ralph Hall. And uh, we became very, very good friends. I actually stood in for him and, and spoke for him and on his last campaign. And I ran his Twitter. He liked having me around because I knew all this history. You know, it's like he's talking to somebody who I, all these players and different figures. And I, I never asked him where he was on November 22nd, 1963, mm -hmm. until um, just shortly before he died. And we just we had a lot of uh, history conversations. And I was sitting there with him and he was, had a fire going. And I said, I said, hey, sir, I never did ask you because he was state senator in the in the early 1960s. He was friends with Lyndon Johnson that, you know, that story about Lyndon Johnson saying, uh, you know, get that last uh, bit of uh, names off that row in the cemetery because they deserve yeah, yeah, to vote, yeah. too. Yeah. He told Ralph to do that. I mean, that was that, that was uh, <laughs> Ralph told that story. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm yeah. not kidding. He said those yeah. people deserve to vote, too. And so, uh, you know, I got a great picture of him and LBJ in the Oval Office. And Ralph was a mm -hmm. tall guy. He was a pilot in World War II, uh, flew in the Pacific. And, uh, you know, he just got, he just standing, you know, eye to eye with, with, uh, with LBJ. It's a great picture. I need to hang it up in my office. But anyway, I asked Ralph, I said, uh, where were you? And he said, well, I was getting ready for dinner. He's like, I was mm -hmm. about to leave. We're headed to Austin. And uh, he was very good friends with John Connolly. Mm -hmm. So they were headed to where JFK was supposed to go. He was actually mm -hmm. on his way to Austin for a dinner that night. Did you, do you, did you ever uh, piece that together? Where, where, where was he headed from Dallas? 
Where, where, who was headed? Uh, AFK. Oh, yeah. He was, he, he was supposed to make a speech at the uh, trademark, the Dallas trademark, which is ironic because Clay Shaw, of course, was the head of the international trademark in New Orleans. So I don't know if that's that's a strange coincidence. You know, that's where he's supposed to speak. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting. He was supposed to and that he was going to later. I think later it was dinner that night in Austin, I think, with the with the governor, because he's with John Connolly. Uh, at least that's, yeah. that's the way Ralph told it. So I just thought that was interesting, like that he was invited to the dinner that never was. And yeah, uh, yeah, later, yeah. you know, he, uh, Ralph would, um, he collected all kinds of memorabilia and he was just, you know, he owned banks and stuff. He was an old school guy, but, uh, he was tied in very well. And uh, he would tell me stories about, uh, and, uh, Marina Oswald lived in the town I grew up in. Uh, she actually had a house in Rockwall, Texas. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I want to say they had me memorabilia. It, it came down to, I think Ralph was going to buy the pistol that Jack Ruby used. Um, and, uh, wow. and he was going to buy that him and Mickey Mantle. <laughs> That's what he's telling me this story. <laughs> him and Mickey Mantle. And uh, wow. uh, anyway, it, it was a great, it was a great story, but his wife told him uh, not to buy that pistol. She said, we don't profit off other people's misery. So he, he had like these kind of swirling connections to the, the people in the JFK assassination, like, uh, like, like John Connolly. And mm -hmm. he would tell me stories about how, uh, you know, every election cycle, John Connolly put that leather, that brace back on his wrist to, mm -hmm. to, to say, you know, I was in the car with Kennedy, you know, and of course mm -hmm. it, so much there, the, the assassination of JFK and the, the people and the figures around it is have still have massive reverberating effects in our history today. It's not, it's not a cold case that doesn't matter folks. I mean, it really is. And you talk about in hidden history, uh, you call it the mother of all conspiracies. It, it, in our modern era, I think you're, I mean, I think you're right, Don. I mean, it's, it is the, uh, yeah. the nucleus for sure. It is. I mean, there's so many, uh, and there's so many people that uh, are willing to, can I believe me, I know from the JFK research community, that's why I'm not more welcome there because I talk about all these other things. And so many of them are willing to consider the FBI and the CIA and everybody covering up in this and witnesses being silenced, all that in these JFK assassination. But they don't take it any farther than that. And they think it's an isolated, happened in a vacuum. And obviously it didn't. And that's why, you know, although I spent from the time as a teenager being, uh, you know, obsessed, you know, the JFK assassination, this is always my wheelhouse issue. It led me down these other rabbit holes. And so, you know, all the other issues that we talk about, but it all started with JFK. And I think for uh, my generation, you know, the JFK assassination, I was a very little kid when it happened, but uh for my generation, the JFK assassination was a seminal event, just as uh, for later the millennials or whatever the 9/11 the, uh, was. But uh, it, so that's it's kind of like that was our 9/11. But this this was something that still I go back to, and I think it's it's crucial to understand what happened because it has ties to everything else. And as I pointed out, if JFK hadn't been assassinated, RFK never would have been. Uh, I don't think Chappaquiddick would happen because I think that was Teddy's political assassination, and uh, certainly the JFK J Jr plane crash, which I've written about critically about, I think was another Kennedy assassination. That wouldn't have happened either. And uh, the attacks on RFK Jr. Would, wouldn't be what they are, I don't think, if it hadn't been for this, again, this history, which goes back to the old man. And that's why I keep talking about Joe Kennedy Sr. Yes. He he lost to his first son, Joe Kennedy Jr., who there's just some suspicions about that plane crash as well. And uh, Joe Kennedy Sr. was uh, hated by the establishment. So I don't think it's any any surprise 
that his son, who got in the White House, for whatever reason, people always ask about, why do you think they let Kennedy in? I, I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe you have other people that think they wanted to create a martyr. They wanted all this. This was all orchestrated. I, I have no idea. But uh, all you can do is look at what happens to the Kennedys. That's why I continue to defend them. You know, people call me a Kennedy fanboy, and I am, uh, because they keep knocking them off. You know, I mean, it's, it's like it's, to me, it, to me, it's 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 it unfortunately speaks well of people if they continue to get knocked off by this uh, this uh, these corrupt tyrants that uh, run us. Well, it's a it's a sad metric in American politics, but uh, it's like, well, did anybody try to kill you? <laughs> it's like, it, you know, are you effective? Have you been assassinated? I mean, that's yeah. Uh, All that people have told me that myself is like, you know. Well, yeah, you know, how come they haven't tried to kill you? So, I mean, babe, the only way to be, I guess, legit is to is to be assassinated. You know, so well, let's not hope for that, that, Don. It's just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to think that's the case. Please, but. Don't, please don't invoke that. Uh, I think it's just a le- I think it's just a level of effectiveness. Yeah, you know, you, you know, but you talk about Joe Kennedy. It always made me really suspicious of the establishment. You know, they called him an appeaser because what yeah. Joe Kennedy, father of JFK, wasn't he the ambassador to Great Britain? Yes. under FDR and they were yes. rivals and they had a, I think they had a very different viewpoint on geopolitics and foreign policy. Yes. Uh, and of course this is America first. I mean, the, the America first movement, somebody needs to do, and you, you've done a lot in your work too, but there's, there's so much to unpack there Yeah. about how it really represented the best of America and for decades and yeah. still is demonized yeah. by the, and Joe Kennedy was one of those people that, he was, you know, one of the guilty men, you know, uh, he was a, he was a Neville Chamberlain, Absolutely. you know, peace in our time and all that. Well, you know, even Neville Chamberlain was a good man too. And yeah. there was, there was some people that didn't want to have a worldwide cataclysm, Absolutely. uh, you know, ju- just because, uh, there was, there was, uh, a lot, he talked about invoking parents. You know, you talk about the America yeah. first speech, asking the parents, do you want your sons yeah. to be sacrificed on this altar? Um, the American people turned away from, uh, you know, the, after world war one, we didn't want any right. part of the league of nations exactly. because we Church. lost 150,000 troops and then hundreds of thousands wounded for what to make the world safe for Hitler and Stalin exactly. it really wasn't a good bet. So Char- I, I, I think, I think history is not kind to those who, you know, again, uh, stand up to the expansion of government power or the expansion of the military industrial complex or the state itself. And Joe Kennedy, I think is a victim of that. And he also he's a bootlegger, right? He didn't make his money. Oh but, yeah, right. That's, exactly. all, that's what you have to be. You're you're a crime yeah, syndicate I, boss, right? I I said I get so sick. I mean, it's the the it's the the uh, it's it's the litany of things against him. He was a bootlegger. He was in, he was involved with the mob, which is nonsense. He the mob hated the Kennedys and the Kennedy administration. The uh, Kennedy stole Chicago with Mayor Daley in 1960. They, I mean, he and these are all. If that happened, it was part of big city politics that happened in every election. So, but again, it's always Kennedy who's singled out. You, you don't talk about landslide Lyndon or the Senate where he is, as you pointed out, used the uh, first brought out the dead vote. Uh, you know, hear, hear things like that and very other questionable uh, electoral politics. But uh, so it's, it's the Kennedys continue. I think they stand out pretty well historically. And as you mentioned, America First Committee, well, Charles Lindbergh was another prominent American that was part of that. Uh, it, and it was mainly a liberal group for the most part. It was classical liberals who, and I, in crimes and cover-ups, I talked a lot about that. People like John T. Flynn, who FDR was the first president to cancel somebody. He canceled that guy's career. He was a good liberal, wrote all the mainstream publications. Uh, FDR sent out, um, you know, memos to all the big uh, newspapers and magazines saying, hey, don't hire this guy. 
he's an appeaser and ruined his career. And uh, that was, I'll have more about that in the upcoming The American Memory Hall about FDR. He was the first one to use the press, which he had, you know, just like you look at Obama or Biden today has the mainstream media in their hand. He used the press of his day to go after his opponents. He used the IRS. It wasn't Nixon. FDR used it much more exclusively. So these, I mean, that's why I write about hidden history, because people just, they don't know that everything they're being told is a lie by the court historians. It, it really is. It, uh, when you start unpacking it, folks, you get real historians like Don Jeffries. You go, oh, my, I can't believe this. I didn't see these connections because you're never it's never brought up. <laughs> I mean, it's just they paint a picture that's completely yeah. different because that the universities are funded by the same corporations that fund the media. So you don't get and there's no reward for people that want an academic career to go against the grain and say, well, that's that doesn't make sense. Let's let's look at some evidence here. Or let's look at the actual character of this. You know, we're we, you know, uh, this last couple of weeks, you know, we had the anniversary of, of Pearl Harbor. I talked about it with David um, on his show here. And we talked about, uh, you know, foreknowledge that FDR had on, on Pearl Harbor. Uh, you know, that the, the Japanese code purple had been broken months before that. They, they knew that the Japanese were going to strike. They didn't know exactly what minute, I don't think, but they knew that it was coming. They were warned by congressmen, by people that had intercepted radio transmissions. Uh, so, you know, that that's a, and then 1980, what was it? John Tolan wrote a book called infamy. Yes. yes. He was a court historian, but he went and actually dug it up and got, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the FOIAs and, and everything else to show that there was ample evidence and, and yeah. foreknowledge and he was demonized. Yes, they, was. uh, Barbara Tuckman, who wrote the guns of August yeah. called, uh, <laughs> Tolan a Nazi yeah, because right. he's because. Well, first of all, that doesn't even make any sense, but he was <laughs> exactly. say, saying that he's a Nazi. Now he wanted to, right. to rewrite the good war, World War II. And mm -hmm. I, I just say, folks, you know, I'm, I'm not a professional historian, but we went to war, supposedly, you know, in, in 1939, the West went to war against itself uh, for Poland uh, because uh, Hitler invaded Poland. So, you know, Great Britain declared war on Germany. Well, at the end of the war, we gave Poland to Stalin. So 50 million dead. Mm -hmm. Just to give it back to Stalin. That's what the, I mean, that's what <laughs> exactly. the end of the war, that's what it was. So, yeah. uh, Don, I could talk history with you for hours mm -hmm. and hours, and that would be a great show in and of itself. But I get to do that every Saturday on America Unplugged. <laughs> that's I'm, right. I'm a very, that's very right. fortunate man. Uh, the America Unplugged channel on Rockfin and uh, anywhere podcasts are found. Don, tell people where they can find you. Uh, uh, and, and of course, I want to say before that, we we're having a, a a panel discussion on an article. I got Charlie Robinson, Mr. Anderson, uh, Guard Goldsmith here. If you want to stick around, Don, you know you're always welcome. If you got to go, that's fine too. That's fine. Uh, yeah, I I, I got to go because I can just, but uh, yeah, I appreciate it. They, they, please, uh, Substack Donald Jeffries at Substack.com is called I Protest Like My Live Streaming. So it's the only place I'm not shadow banned on. Pipe the Bimbo and Red is a new book. Masking the Truth is out there as well, the most shadow banned book in the world. So uh, I appreciate everyone's support, and uh, I thank you, Tony, for your support. Thank you, Don. Always, always care, a pleasure, brother. sir. Appreciate okay. you. I'll talk to you later. Yes, Thank sir. You. All right, folks. Well, we're in the third hour and uh, I've got a, uh, a very esteemed panel. Let me start adding their streams one at a time here. All right. We've got Mr. Anderson, Charlie Robinson, Guard Goldsmith, all here to, and, and by, by the way, it's, it wasn't like a lot of advanced notice. So thanks gentlemen for being here. The third hour of the David Knight show. I've, I've not even really plugged the entire time. We're in the third hour. It's been, you know, Guard Goldsmith came in early, made radio easy. Then I got Don Jeffries. How can you not make radio or podcasting easier than that? You got Don. 
So we're in the third hour. Um, I think we got some great subject matter, but I want to introduce uh, my little brother, uh, Mr. Anderson. If 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 you want to know what what he does at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know when they asked where the Ark of the Covenant went, and it says it's being examined by top men. That's what he is. It's it's being examined by top men. So welcome welcome to the David Knight Show, Mister. Yeah, let's go with that. Hey, Tony, how you doing, buddy? Uh, good to see you, my friend. Thanks for having uh, me. Oh, thanks for coming on. Uh, this article we're going to discuss, I thought it was, uh, it has so much to unpack, so we're going to get to it. Charlie Robinson, thanks for being here as well. Uh, author of The Octopus of Global Control, The Controlled Demolition of the American Empire, Macroaggressions Podcast, and The Hardest Working Man in Alternative Media. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you too. As as they say in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I always feel like uh in somehow in, in this life, I'm I'm just Indiana Jones trying to get the 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 idol to have the, the same weight as the bag of sand. It doesn't act quite right. You know, I'm just I'm just trying to make my life work that way. Uh guard, thanks for coming back in the third hour. And let me uh, so to the best of my ability, I'm my own producer. I don't have a Travis Knight here. But let me click this article and try to get it to feed into the stream. One second. But we're going to go over. I saw this yesterday or two days ago, and I thought this is this is a phenomenon. We've got Gen Z is reading the Bin Laden letter. Mm. Okay, so a lot to unpack there to begin with. But this is the again TikTok. All the things that uh, Nikki Haley hates. <laughs> uh, this is uh, the Daily Mail. Let me pull this up. So Daily Mail, one in five Americans and the young Americans has a positive view of Osama bin Laden disturbing. Sorry, I don't know why this is coming up. Well, I lost, I lost the feed. Well, let me put it back. Give me a second. I'll put it back up. But Gen Z is reading the bin Laden letter, right? I'm, I've got questions about that in and of itself. But what this is, is you've got a, this new generation is, is stumbling upon um, a phenomenon known as blowback and rationalizing the actions of the so-called 9-11 hijackers and the, the terror plot uh, because of our involvement in the Middle East and so on and so forth. If you read the bin Laden letter, well, it's interesting that this is even a headline because there's something going on here. And I, I want to, um, to unpack what could be causing this right now when we have it's nine 11. And I, I was part of, you know, the first army company on the ground uh, in Kandahar, Afghanistan following nine uh, 11. And then again, I was in the tail end of the invasion of Iraq. So I had a front row seat to the geopolitics that were, the app in the aftermath. And I learned a lot about it. I learned a lot about, you know, the, the different belief structures and who does what. And, uh, you know, I worked with the intelligence communities and what they were seeing there on the ground and what they were talking about. But I've had questions ever since, because if you notice, there was this time when it was like, we're in the battle of civilizations and it's good versus evil. And we're going to democratize mankind and all this stuff. And all of a sudden one day, it just went away. And I thought that's not how clashes of civilizations work. You know, and if you go back and you look at uh, Syria uh, in the lead up to that, the deep state for sure wanted to try to drag America into a, another uh, Middle Eastern conflict. 
it, they just couldn't get the get it off the ground. They couldn't get the uh, the public behind it. They tried several times with with false flags that were clearly like just sloppy. The white hats and he's gassing his own people. And and I this is when I started out in radio, and I'm like, clearly this is a false flag. I mean, can you see that? And the American people, for all their faults, didn't jump. There was there was remember there was the red line that that Obama put down. Well, if you folks, if you remember your timeline, right after that, you didn't hear much about it. There was the, there was ISIS and the Toyota pickups that we gave them, and all the weapons. And you know, uh, Hillary Clinton ran in 2016 on bombing uh, and shooting down Russian aircraft if they try to hurt Al Qaeda. That's where we went. But so by 2016, our the policy of the U.S. government was to protect Al Qaeda. I don't know if anybody was paying attention. That that was the 2016 foreign policy debate between Trump and Hillary Clinton. So Al-Qaeda went away and now they're bringing it, they're getting the band back together <laughs> because after October 7th, so I, I've been asking the question, I go, where'd they go? Why is it not a thing? Cause we have a wide open, if you want to know, like was something's real and uh, I can't wait for, for you guys to chime in on this, but we've, if you want to know something's real, you, like COVID-1984, is it real? Is it the most deadly thing that ever? No, because we have a wide open border. Is terrorism real? Yeah, probably when we fund it. And of course, if you go over to somebody's, you know, where they live and occupy it, you're going to get shot at and blown up. There's things that are going to happen. That's real. But we have a wide open border. So, you know, Jim Mars brought that up for years and years. You, that's kind of the tell. So I'd ask where it went. So now I'm seeing these stories. I, I'm going to see if I can pull it back. I'm having trouble with my uh, being my own, I'm going to fire myself as my own producer. <laughs> I know you guys had a chance to, to read the article. Um, Charlie, I'll throw it to you first. What, what were your thoughts on this as a phenomenon going on with young people and Osama bin Laden? I mean, what's, you know, unpack this for me. What am I looking at? I can't wait till ISIS gets out of the studio and drops their new album. It's going to be the best. It's good. They might even, it might even be the bomb. They say, um, this is, just wait until these kids get to Bill Cooper's work. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, you can watch them like going through. They're like, oh, look at this Bin Laden letter and everything. You're like, keep going. Yeah, keep, 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 going. keep going. You're almost there. You're almost to the good part. It's it's um, it's hilarious and terrifying all at the same time. Because, because again, like I like the fact that they're not getting their news from the mainstream media. But they're getting it from a source that's that also is equally ripe for manipulation and and preying on their emotions and 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 giving them ninety five percent truth with five percent lies and all that all those tricks that, that that they use on us to to convince people to feel a certain way about things. Um, it's interesting that they're you know you, you, I want to like interject into this whole conversation with these with the with the kids that are that are reading about bin laden and say like okay like here's a little footnote as well like remember we used to call him tim osman when he worked for the cia we did that for 20 years he was one of our guys so like that's information that you probably need to know and the Tora Bora caves and all that nonsense, you know, you, you probably like it would have helped. It's very helpful to be alive during that event because you in, in, in retrospect, you look back and you go, oh, yeah, I do remember that. That is crazy. You know, you think you you think 
you've got thoughts on Osama bin Laden, all your new generation. That's great. Let's we we can explore that. But also just remember that the mainstream media told you that a passport from a hijacker was found at the foot of an FBI agent blocks from the crime scene. If you can believe that, as Garrick Utley had to yes. Uh, preface because he could barely believe that the words were coming out of his mouth. So th there's a lot that gets lost just over the years. I'm sure that this, the same has happened to me looking back on the Kennedy assassination because I wasn't there and I, and I wasn't alive, you know? And so the new generation re-examining 9-11, good, I guess. I, I'm, I'm all for them examining 9-11, but only if they do so with some better source material. So we know that the mainstream media is totally corrupt, but you know, I don't know that TikTok is much better. So, so again, like I'm, I, on the one hand, I, I'm, I'm glad that they're reassessing things, but I would love to be in the room to, to kind of say, Oh, that's propaganda. Hang on a second. That stuff that you're, you're talking about right now, that's straight up propaganda and lies you're close, but here's where, you know, I'd love to kind of guide the process, but if, you know, we don't really get that, that luxury. It's, it's, it's hilarious to me though. Also like the, 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 the side of me that finds the humor in all of this, like the people, these kids are like, well, actually Osama bin Laden was a great guy. And you're just like, Oh, this is so, this is get, get your popcorn. The 2024 is going to be wild. It's, it, like you mentioned, like, it, can you imagine they come across the audio recording of Bill Cooper and I, you know, I, Charlie and I both spoke at uh, Free World NYC in New York City, uh, you know, pretty much on the anniversary of, of 9-11, uh, just talking about the event. And we, I referenced Bill Cooper because it's one of the things that and I've you know talked with Billy Ray Valentine, who just joined us, by the way. He's hanging out. Uh, he's going to be part of the panel. It's good to see. It's good to see BRV. You know, thinking about the, him telling his audience in June of 2001 that there's going to be a... a, a major terror event there's going to be a, a, a cataclysmic terror event uh, it's going to be blamed on osama bin laden and don't you even believe it i mean this is a guy in his eager arizona uh you know his upstairs in his home studio uh telling you how this works and how that the cia had recruited osama bin laden and trained him and funded him and they know exactly where he is and uh, that, you know, CNN can somehow find him and do an interview, but the FBI and the CIA and military intelligence and supposedly he's an enemy of Israel and uh, he's saying he's going to attack. But uh, why doesn't Israel take him out? There's all these open questions. And then who is he? Um, matter of fact, there's an article up. Um, I thought this was pretty apropos. There's an article up on Lou Rockwell uh, dot com, a great site for articles and libertarian thought. And, and it says, is Al-Qaeda an existential threat? And what is the meaning of Al-Qaeda in Arabic? And you know what it is? The meaning means that it means doesn't mean the base, which is what we were told by the media, like they just sprung up and it's this shadowy you know, group that just wants to kill us for our freedom. You know, And by the way, if they hate us for our freedom, can we just be friends now since we don't have any left? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they don't they, they want to kill us for our freedom. But it doesn't mean that, folks. It doesn't mean. The base, it means the database. It was the database set up by the Central Intelligence Agency for the Mujahideen and the Holy War, the Holy Warriors, the fighters against the Soviet Union after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And they knew that they anticipated the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan. It's one of the reasons why you 
Charlie mentioned the, the name Tim Osmond. That was Osama bin Laden's code name. And he was brought in in 1979. I, I know when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan because that's the day I was born. So, I mean, I, they, they were talking to him. It was, I just had a birthday. It was December 26th. They, they already had that in the works to resist the Soviet invasion. So they were anticipating this. So it's not, you know, these surface level things are not exactly what, and the kids are stumbling across them. I personally think, and I'm going to throw it to Mr. Anderson after this. I personally think that these type of uh, pop culture cul-de-sacs, they're cre- I think they're creating a database uh, of Gen Zers and TikTokers and all these other, they want to see who subscribes to this belief system because I think they're actually doing some data mining right now. Um, if you know anything about simulations, the Pentagon it's two or three years ago ran a, a, a war simulation against a Generation Z Bitcoin revolt. So what's the Pentagon have to do with currency? Everything. Anyway, I'm going to throw Mr. Anderson, what, what were your th- any thoughts on this uh, being some sort of like trial balloon they put out for, you know, they want to see, test the mood of, of younger people or TikTok people? What, what, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I'm kind of not in that sphere of influence, but it seemed right from the outset to me. It's somewhat of a limited survey. It looked like only a thousand people, but I was annoyed from right from the outset because this is just going to give people like Ben Shapiro more ammunition to practice his angry auctioneer cadence <laughs> and Mark Levin to start yelling, ah, shut up, you idiot. So <laughs> there's reasons I don't listen to them anymore. Um But yeah, I really don't engage in conversations with people who don't even have anything more than surface level details. I've had to come to that agreement with myself to avoid a lot of irritation. I mean, I would imagine these people who answered that way in the survey have no idea about that building that Wonder Woman and her jet hit on the same day that collapsed. And so (laughs) I, I I would really like to see how the questions were framed and if I could add some other questions to the survey like that. So I agree with you, Tony. We were discussing about it. You brought up something I didn't know the other evening about there was apparently a, a memo the White House sent out, right? About which of these psyops are real. We don't even know anymore. Oh, so, yeah, that's recent. Yeah, the, yeah. in the last uh, year or so, the executive branch put out a memorandum to in the all agencies in the periphery of the executive to report on what psyops they were running because new, no one knew exactly what was real. There's so many psyops that folks, you can look it up. They, they wanted to, they wanted to try to figure out what was actually real or not because they were running so many simultaneous psyops and uh, they got away from them. I like the, the, I like the invisible plane reference. That's very good. I've not thought of that before. It's the meme with all the Spider-Man's pointing at each other. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of Charlie last night. <laughs> well, well, guard, uh, you know, you, uh, you and I talked off air before we went live today. I kind of mentioned this article and I, and I, David's, I believe spoken about, there's something weird with it. it like they, yeah. it, it makes headlines. Um, in, especially after October 7th, you know, where they're getting the band back together. We're hearing about Al Qaeda, you know, Billy Ray's mentioned this to me many times about, you know, after Trump had, uh, Soleimani uh, killed. Yeah, um, there was a, there was hashtag World War Three. The the Iranian general, you know, they killed in Iraq, and um, there was something on the horizon with another conflict, and then that kind of got buried. 
And Billy's been mentioned, they're going to bring that back. They're going to bring that back, you know, and I, I've been waiting for it because I would wonder what would they use for the opportunity. This seems to be sneaking it in, kind of putting it back into the, the consciousness. And this is something that Bill Cooper talked about in his 2001 broadcast. He's like, they're getting him ready for his close up. Like they're, they're showing you the image of Osama bin Laden doing these, you know, these fake interviews like CNN and so supposedly they can find him, but the intelligence community can't all this stuff. Right. And he's, he's an enemy of America. It is, there's something with this, I think that goes along with not just the, the gullibility of younger people, but the, the fact that they won't research it a little bit further. Um, but there's something else to it. Guard, what do you think? Does this, is this some kind of, does yeah, the executive you know, branch need to rein this uh, off into? It was interesting because that poll is, is quite a reminder. It follows up on, uh, my initial blush was, wow, you know, this seems to be spontaneous. It's coming out of, you know, things like TikTok and people are spreading these things around. And again, you know, we Brent mentioned Nikki Haley to stay off of TikTok because you're going to turn into a Nazi, you know, oh, my gosh. But uh, uh, but oh, and by the way, I hear that uh, even though Wonder Woman lost her invisible jet uh, in 9-11, uh, she's going to have a new one to be able to fly to cop 29 privately. So it'll be totally cool. Totally for the climate. Everything's thumbs up. Awesome. You know, but, uh, anyway, it's just so they can gin up more fear, you know, but, um, I, and looking back at it, it does seem kind of strange. And, uh, we know that so often the, these forces that have these long-term plans, they have to probe, they have to test and find out where the film is is strongest in opposition and where it is most um, most malleable. And so it, it, it definitely could be something where even though I think the bin Laden document is a real document and does actually show what he thinks, maybe even that isn't real. I don't know, but I do think it is. And I the, the logic behind the actual bin Laden thing, whether it's real or not real, I start to think to myself, okay, look, we know that in inside the bin Laden document, he talks about basically he's he's giving the argument for blowback. And he's saying, look, we're doing this not because we hate McDonald's, not because we don't like Playboy magazine, but because of what is going on in the United States policies here for decades. And we're going after you. And just like you've been sold this this tomfoolery of this is your government. We are now also agreeing with that. So we're going to attack civilians. Uh, you know where the line is there and how closely he was working with the CIA. And but this is the thing. If that is a false narrative that someone is putting out, then that actually runs counter to what Wesley Clark was discussing in on Democracy Now! when he was saying, look, I found out they want to topple these seven nations. They want to eventually go after Iran, which is what they're trying to do now. So I tend to think, as some of the other people, as I mentioned, the Times Square bomber said the same thing when he was when he was uh, sentenced and asked how he pled. So we know that there is a, such a thing as blowback. One of the most trustworthy guys out there, Ron Paul, has talked about that. We know when you're blowing up wedding parties or soccer players in Yemen or little kids or extrajudicial murders of Americans overseas as well, uh, we know that there's going to be maybe uh, uh, some people who are connected to those who don't quite like that. So I think the the arguments that were presented in the Bin Laden, uh, bin Laden uh, letter uh, are probably authentic, but 
where did it come from uh in in this sudden way was it was it artificial it's very tough to tell uh, and that's where i sort of I, I just can't figure that out. If it was done artificially, why would they put that information out there and get all these people now exposed to an argument that runs counter to their long-term goals? Unless they've got some other long-term goals, or as you say, they're probing because they thought it would be discovered eventually. So why don't we put it out now? I just don't know. Perhaps data mining. There seems to be like a resurgence of trying to reset the table again to a a middle eastern uh focused foreign policy again especially as the dollar wanes i just read you know we, we read the article earlier today about russia and iran officially dumping all ties to the dollar this is part of de-dollarization that's happening uh, you need to go back to wesley clark general wesley clark that was a uh, supreme uh, commander of nato up in, you know and uh, during uh, mr clinton's uh, kosovo war uh, another one another one of my foreign wars i had a front row seat to and he got to he went to the Pentagon after he retired after 9-11. And they said, we're going to hit seven countries in five years. And this is always there's been some, you know, this these the strategy of controlling trade and oil. And of course, there's there's the political aspect of uh, the Israeli lobby in our foreign policy as well and how much we get involved there. So I think they're I think they're resetting the the table. And I think they're also data mining. I think they're uh, they realize that the country is not the same. You couldn't do the same things that you're talking about galvanizing uh, popular sentiment. It would have to be cataclysmic on a level we've never seen before to even get close to those type of numbers to to justify everything that happened post 9-11. So to me, they're doing something. And they're, they're of course, they're controlling the narrative as well. Um, because, I mean, if you can keep it focused on, well, that's why terrorism happens and not not the fact that it's, you know, 9-11 was something other than what they said it was. I mean, Charlie mentioned earlier, they find the uh, the hijacker's passport in the rubble. You know, uh, jet fuel somehow uh, breaks the laws of phys physics and melts steel, uh, but it can't melt a passport. I mean, come on. I mean, it's like th th this is the stuff they expect you to believe or that, you know, there's uh, like Mr. Anderson said, a Wonder Woman's plane hits the third building that collapses symmetrically into its own footprint. You know I mean? You got to buy that somehow. So there's, I think there's a lot with this. So there's, these are the little things that I pick up on that I think these are going to be things to watch. Like this is, they're definitely building a new narrative. They're getting the band back together. You're starting to hear things about terrorism again. They're getting worried again, uh, worried. Um, you know, they're starting to, they're going to, are they going to bring back the color coding? Uh, Billy Ray Valentine, are they going to bring back, uh, you know, the, the levels that what is it tom ridge remember tom ridge 2003 or so head of the, the the newly formed department of homeland security he was the governor of pennsylvania and he's got you color coded so if you if it's red then you got to be really scared orange not so much yellow i don't know yellow maybe it's uh, you got you got to check your phone make sure that no headlines have changed where you know keep your gas mask within reach are are you uh, are you color coding your fear billy ray how are they going to um to make this happen with your Neuralink is is more more of That's an important great. point to me. Right. They're they're getting rid of uh, of cell phones. They've already started talking about what's the next phase. Uh, what's the next phase in wearables? How are we going to do this because we don't want to uh, carry around cell phones anymore? So they'll probably beam the color right into your your dreams, and when you wake up, you know where you're at. 
as far as uh, these attacks go or whatever they're trying to say. Listen, um, this story <clears throat> brings up a lot of a lot, several different points that I want to make. In particular, the most important one, I just think this is part of fourth generation warfare. It, th this is aimed to confuse psyops upon psyops upon psyops, right? I'm not saying that it is a psyop, but I don't know. And that is uh, the point of all of this, right? It, it was a, a young lady that put it out on TikTok. And um, that's the genius of TikTok, right? You can put out a video for 30 seconds. And if it's a cute girl and it's produced the right way, people are going to watch. And, and they're not going to question, really. They're going to be like, oh, my God, that's what it said. And they're going to keep moving. They're not going to go research it. They don't care. And they don't have any prior knowledge of what came before. They really don't know the narrative of 9-11. They don't know what happened. They don't know three buildings fell. They don't know any of that. They may not know that two buildings fell. Right. You can ask uh, people walking the street nowadays what happened on 9-11. They might not be able to tell you if they're off of a certain age. Right. So they see videos like this. And they take it as gospel. But also, um, it, it's important to realize that uh, there have been psyops that have been run on uh, the people of America and the people of the world throughout social media for quite some time now. So to put out, so first off, I have a hard time believing um, um, this poll personally. Is it out of the realm of possibility? No, it's not. I, I just have a hard time believing it for whatever reason. Um, but um, let's put that, put that, putting that aside, let, let's say that this is true and, and that these kids uh, believe this stuff. Gen Z, they believe this stuff. There's a couple of reasons why it came out right now. It came out now. Uh, in part uh, because of what's going on in the Middle East, right? And, and the sentiments uh, of uh, most young Americans are anti the Israeli government, not necessarily anti-Israel, right? They're giving Biden incredible pushback, right? To the point that he has to make some changes and try to appease these people because they're like, listen, what's going on over there? Knock it off, right? Let's do something about this. So. It's very opportunistic, in my opinion, and that's why I, I would suspect something like a PSYOP here, that this video was inserted into TikTok where young people watch, they look, they consume, they don't analyze, they just consume and keep it moving. And that becomes their reality. Whatever they are told for those 30 seconds becomes their reality. There are few from that group that were, will actually go and investigate. 1% maybe that care enough to investigate. And that is the, the, the problem. This is the mind control. And it will continue to get worse because the people know less and less as generations continue. And this is the way we've been bred. I am no exception. I just happened to be born before the social media age, so I know a little bit more than they do, right? But I don't know as much as Tony does on things like this. Tony is a rare breed on things like this. Guard, you know, uh, Charlie, Mr. Anderson, God bless. How are you? Yeah, um, don't put me in there. <laughs> I'm assuming you're the same, <laughs> right? You know, but but um um, I know more than than most people um that that were born 
uh, after me uh, be, by default, right? But, but I understand how this works, right? So every generation that comes afterwards just knows more, more, knows less by default and is less interested by default, right? It is, it is an attention deficit uh, issue and, and, um, and a dumbing down, a, deliberately, a deliberate dumbing down of the people. And, and that's what I think is going on here. And I, I think it's fourth generation warfare, fifth generation warfare. It is a psyop. Uh, and, uh, and we need to all be aware of this and try to, try to instruct our kids, you know, sit them down and let them know what's going on. And, and, uh, if they come across this stuff and they will inevitably come across things like this and believe it because they, I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. Um, we, we have to like, try to give them all the information, uh, hope that they make up their own minds and, and have intelligent, uh, uh rationales behind uh, their way, their frame of thinking. But I think that's the best we can do right now. This is very, very, very complicated, and we don't know what's real and what's not anymore. Well, here's an open question. Was this inserted by intelligence as a poison pill, as a virus to kill TikTok? As to say, oh, they're radicalizing the youth. Hey, that's the oldest like trick that the establishment uses to get rid of anybody thinking. That's, what they, that's the excuse they use to kill Socrates. He said, well, it, he's corrupting the youth. If I may, and, and then I'll throw it to everybody else, they, they've let TikTok and Instagram and, and, uh, and, and other platforms like it be the Wild West that YouTube used to be. They've let this happen. They've been going after TikTok for how long? Because of, of the Chinese thing or whatever, that it's a Chinese company and all this other stuff, and they're spying on Americans. But they allow all of this stuff to go on because they want these people to know whatever, whatever's being put out. They want to colonize the, the minds of the young kids. That's what they want to do. Otherwise, they would have shut this down already. Eventually, they're going to. Eventually, there'll be the, the, the restrictions that they put on a YouTube, on a TikTok, and on a Instagram, and on Apple Podcasts, and all of these things. That's going to happen. But right now, um, uh, you could say that they're turning a blind eye, but we know better than that. You know, if, if they've shut down YouTube, what, what, what's that, what, our free speech anyway on YouTube, if they, if they stopped any rational, not ra let me say, if they stop people from actually giving their thoughts, whatever doesn't fit the mainstream narrative, if, if they've stopped that on YouTube, why haven't they stopped it on everything else? And this is a worldwide thing, by the way. Okay, what, why haven't they stopped it on the other platforms? Um, this is on purpose, in my opinion. And they will. They will censor all of this, but uh, just not, not yet because their goals haven't been completed, whatever those goals are. Yeah, and you go back to something David talks about all the time. It was August sixth, uh, twenty eighteen. The uh, the the real collusion between uh, big tech censorship, starting with Infowars, but they followed uh, in the in the uh, the later in the month with eight hundred other sites that weren't necessarily uh, to the right or sharing much in common with Infowars except one thing, and they were they were anti and skeptic they're anti uh surveillance state authoritarianism military industrial complex uh they, they they were skeptical of the of the warfare state and, and that I was think simultaneous to the prop or not thing that came out later where they there was propaganda or not was this organization i think tied to a lot of the the left-wing soros type money and podesta type people as well 
Yes. And that's, that's a common theme. And so Billy was mentioning the, you know, you got, you got TikTok, and it's still the wild West in so many ways. Do they do the same thing that they did with you? They got you on these platforms. Then you start talking, then you start freely expressing yourself. Then you, you know, you create a handle that expresses those views. Then they have all of your data and then they just curate like Tim, (laughs) like Tim cook says, right. We're going to curate and we're going to curate the experience. So basically they get everybody over there. This is the truth. You get on it and then they just remove these accounts. So then they control the narrative. It's uh, it's kind of like uh, a keto, right? You use the other person's momentum against themselves. Very counterintuitive. Plus they, you know, they can allow these things to be said and they, oh, oh that was radical. You realize they radicalized the youth. So I don't, I'm thinking bigger pick. When I see headlines like this, this is where my brain goes. Like there's doing, this isn't, this is a message. Um, but I'm, I'm going to do another sweep around the, this very esteemed panel. And by the way, thanks again, guys, for joining me short notice. Uh, and, uh, thanks to, to David Knight and David Knight family and the crew and, uh, trusting me with this show since 2019. Uh, it's a huge, huge honor. I, um, I think about all that David, uh, does for, uh, the truth and, uh, for Liberty and, uh, you know, fighting back against, I mean, just the forces of darkness, folks. I mean, <laughs> it is, uh, we're, we're living through the, the true expression of the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. We certainly are there. And, uh, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of, uh, this program, uh, when I am needed. And when I usually come on Thursdays and talk a little bit of gold and silver and Bitcoin and the apocalypse with, uh, with the great David Knight himself, but I haven't even plugged. Uh, before we go around again, uh, thedavidnightshow.com, folks, share those links, get people involved, sign up uh, for the newsletter, uh, you know, support David. There's ways that you can support him. You can go to Rumble and sign up for a, a membership uh, recurring. You can do direct uh, cash app. You know, all of that is, 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 is available. You can send him a check. And I say that uh, because David doesn't plug enough for himself. He's just not that kind of guy. Um, I understand because I'll go obviously i'll even go in my own show without plugging uh and uh to my own detriment but please do that and and i've also set up a, a website for david to give him credit for any uh precious metals you know davidknight.gold if you go to davidknight.gold you get in touch with me that's wise wolf gold and silver we've got the membership program at wolfpack it's just an easy way to to set it and forget it and stack gold and silver you want to all the stories that i i didn't get to today like walmart starting to sell gold uh, Costco did a hundred million in gold bars ran out. I don't run out by the way, I can supply you. You're going to go to wise wolf. I'm not going to run out like Costco. Plus I can lock your, your price in and, uh, you can get out of this fiat currency system. De-dollarization is real. All these things are coming to, we're in a fourth turning. So it's great that we have David at the helm, uh, guiding us through this, uh, these perilous times. So, uh, thanks everybody for joining and supporting the show. So that'll be the last plug for today. If I did plugged at all. Um, Mr. Anderson, any thoughts on, on the discussion? I definitely wanted to uh, see if you had any more in that brain of yours. To, uh... <laughs> Not much. Um, I'm scraping the barrel right now. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I, I agreed with your points, Tony. And I just came, keep coming back to this idea of why do they care so much to be more than indif- indifferent to this topic? And I imagine they don't have all the information or a lot of the information we have, which is an assumption of mine, but my mind goes off and says, I doubt they know about the Belfort Declaration that was issued in 1917, which was a public statement regarding the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. 
um, in Palestine then, which was an Ottoman region, which had a Jewish minority. And I bet they don't know that that was issued to Lord Rothschild, right? Lord Rothschild, right. who went to Cambridge at the same time, wouldn't you know it, as Aleister Crowley. Then Aleister Crowley is a topic of a very interesting book by William Ramsey and yes. how he relates to 9-11 and the New World Order. So it just all comes full circle to me. So I, I think in general, uh, you're right. It just seems like a psyop. Like if I can give you minimum information, can I still um, change your opinions in such a severe way that you take this position, even though you don't have the full information? So I like bringing the Balfour Declaration in. We're getting we're getting serious on our history here, Mr. Anderson. You can find Mr. Anderson as a co-host. I, on I had to do a plug for William Ramsey. You know that. Well, he's deserving of one. If I'd have done, if I'd have hosted uh, two days, I'd have had him on. I talked to him about coming next next time. I will bring William Ramsey on, folks. I just didn't have enough notice for him. Uh, yeah, great, great points though, and some good history. This is this is you know, it's the history you don't know. There's nothing new under the sun except the history you don't know to to channel the 33rd president of the United States, Harry Truman. Uh, Charlie, uh, any 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 final thoughts on on this topic? And maybe we'll do a little round robin here uh, to to round out the show. I'm still hung up on the fact that you are the Ron Popeil of gold and silver. The <laughs> set it and forget it. I'm just waiting for your pocket fisherman. Um, I, you know, I listen, the ShamWow guy, just for the record, I, <laughs> I would be the, the ShamWow of precious metals. This, this brings me back to um, Yuri Bezmenov, of course, and, and this concept of ideological subversion and how it's a process and how it takes 20 years and, and it's cumulative. And, and you wonder about all of this stuff, how this next generation is being educated or miseducated or diseducated, however you want to look at it. And this is all kind of part of it, the, the new tech version of this. And, and it starts to, it, it makes me think like this is the softening up of the minds of an entire generation, TikTok generation now. Uh, and if you give it 20 years and then another five years of destruction, and then you add a six week crisis you break the brains of these people and you send them off into um, um, what he describes as nor the fourth stage, normalization. And so it's interesting to watch it. I mean, it's it's scary and, and hilarious and all those things, too. But from like a like a like a guy with a clipboard and a white lab coat, me just kind of watching this going, oh, I see where you guys are going with. Oh, this is we're still in the ideological subversion of this group. Great. OK, great. Get them to believe nonsense. And and OK. Yeah. And then and like you said, it'll just kind of disappear. Right. We don't know the criteria necessarily. You, you mentioned thousand people. That's nothing. So you've got TikTok, right? You can't you reach like a million people. Can we do this with a million people? Do a million people think this? So. It's it feels artificial, like it's made to have. It feels like they're testing to see what. We I mean, obviously, we know it got into the news cycle. If it got into the news cycle by default, there's something wrong with it. So it feels very, very made to happen. Uh, yeah, like, let's just see what the re results are to this. But also, Tony, to your point, what a what a perfect cul-de-sac to put some cheese at the end of lure a bunch of people in and then write down their license plates. You know what I mean? Like who, who went for the cheese? All these. Okay, good. good yeah, let's make a note of these. Let's keep an eye on these people in the future. 
So it, it's it's sorting. You know, you feel like a sorting process of, of this. And you feel intelligence ties to it as well. Like like Billy said, they want TikTok to go away. They turn the switch. It, 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 it's a different version of it. But it's serving a purpose right now. It's giving them a lot of information as to who's using it and who what their demographic is and how do they think and what do they like. And they're building a digital voodoo doll of all these people on TikTok and elsewhere, of course, not limited to TikTok. And they're figuring out you know, your digital twin. What do you like? What are you into? What do you follow? Who are you? Should we be worried about you? Are you the type of person that's going to write? Are you the type of person that's going to have a problem with the surveillance state? You know, so, so it's a good mechanism for them to, you know, before they turn the switch and make sure that you don't ever see anything of relevancy on TikTok. It's a good way in the early stages of gathering information about who is actually consuming this information and then putting them in some sort of matrix where they can be followed for the next generation to see, see what they think, see how they think and what they, what they're into. So um, I, I, I don't, you know, it, I think as we all agree, it's multi-layered here. There's a lot going on. And, um, and to me, it feels like some sort of ideological trap that maybe some of these people are walking into that they're going to get themselves on some list that they didn't even know existed. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll see where, where it goes in the new year. And do you see the the trend continuing where we're, we're going to be looking at uh, future years having to deal with this state constructed narrative of what terrorism is? You think we're going to, they're going to bring this back? Yeah, it feels like, I mean, the, the, the we're already starting to see the, the labeling of, the, the the largest threat to America is white national domestic terrorism, right? And 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 so that terrorism catch-all term has been very successful for a long, long time. But now, unfortunately, it's now taking on more of a legal definition. Now, if you're legally defined as being a terrorist, you are now a terrorist operating on the homeland, and the homeland is a battlefield. And now you have no rights. So again, it's all fun and games when you're slurring and calling Trump a terrorist or calling your neighbor a terrorist or or whatever. But there's also a legal component to this as well. When you get that domestic terrorist label slapped on you legally, you have no rights anymore. <laughs> good, good, good luck. You're you know you disappear. So. I think that this is a this is a, a term. This terrorism it's so broad that it can be applied to all kinds of things. It's the perfect sort of apparatus for the state to use to go after people. They can just mold it like silly putty to whatever they want it to fit. They want it to fit you. It'll fit. It'll fit describing you as long as we just go back through your TikTok viewing history in your Facebook posts, in your Twitter feed, and we find out we build a case retroactively, like Snowden talked about, um, to see what you were talking about in the past. And then that bolsters the, the case that they're making, that you are now legally a domestic terrorist. Of course you are. Look at all these things that you said about the government back in 2019. Amazing. Uh, folks, you're watching uh, someone who's... Had very much mastered their craft. This is Charlie Robinson. I have the pleasure of talking to this gentleman often. He's got a great show called Macro Aggressions, and uh, I love that breakdown. What do you what do you call uh, five conspiracy theorists who get together on a live panel? 
what is that? The news? Is that what the news is? <laughs> uh, thanks so much for that analysis, Charlie. Very smart, as always. Uh, Guard, uh, final thoughts on this as we careen into the, the last hour of the last show of the, the David Knight show of 2023. Yeah, and uh, it's so great to be here all with you guys. And I think what we would call it is non-existent in the eyes of the CIA. So let's just keep that in mind. We just don't exist. Uh, but uh, or maybe we all are. But if I may, may I pose a question to you all to see, because I've been sort of, you know, I've been ruminating on this, letting the uh, letting the fruit stew in my head, uh, the fruiting bodies, the fungi. Um, what if. The release of the bin Laden document or the promotion of this was done as a way to, to within the larger narrative book to turn to a new chapter in the narrative of switching things over to labeling everyone an anti-Semite. Now you are suddenly affected by the bin Laden document, this large percentage of Gen Zers suddenly are praising a hero of bin Laden. Well, you don't have to call him a hero. You just say, what did, did his argument actually contain any valid points? What, what, did, what did you discover? That very terminology itself is, is pretty darn weighted. But then we see with what happened on October 7th and did, his, did, 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 did the Israelis know about it? Well, they did have foreknowledge. Did they know about the date? We don't know. But I, and this is just pure speculation. I, I could be way off base here, but I do get a sense now just talking with you all. What if this were used to now they're no longer we're not hearing about Black Lives Matter as much. We're not hearing about this. We're not hearing about that. We've got this swing towards, especially with the immigration thing, towards this now international white nationalist United States and you don't like Israel either, you're anti-Semitic sort of thing, and you read the bin Laden document, so therefore, we're going to have to watch out for you. It's the new war on terror, and now it's Iran. I, I just don't know, and I'm just throwing that out there because I'm, I'm just thinking to, my, you know, I'm thinking to myself, obviously, thinking, um, is, that, is that within the realm of possibility, or am I just speculating too much? Well, it's, very, it's a very powerful weapon. Uh, if you go back to... Uh... The Gulf War, uh, Pat Buchanan was on the McLaughlin group, and he just happened to mention the fact that, you know, the, if we go to war in the Gulf, it's not going to be, you know, the coastal elites kids. It's going to be people from the heartland. And uh, I think he said it's going to be guys named Leroy Brown and stuff like it's not going to be, uh, you know, some coastal elites kid. And, and he said the only people that really want this war, are the uh, military industrial complex and their amen corner and APAC which is the American-Israeli uh, Political Action Committee or whatever they are. Um, he was vilified for that. That seems quaint now, but that was, that was, you know, that was the original, like, oh, you're just anti-Semitic. So that, like a blanket term. They use that all the time now. It's ad nauseum. I think it, you talk about real blowback. The blowback is they've used that term and they're using it into oblivion. It no longer has really any relevance anymore. It's not even about, the true meaning of what, what's supposed to be anti-Semitic. So I think, I think you're right though, guard. I mean, it, it, it definitely gives them a short term strategy to any, any movement that's anti uh, war or anti-state or anti-narrative, they can you know, delegitimize that. 
by calling it anti-Semitic and lumping it into one thing. And this kind of gets them an early start. And they they may have run this simulation with the Pentagon. Again, I this is, hasn't been more than two or three years where the, the Pentagon was concerned and running running a war game against a Gen Z Bitcoin revolt and Gen Z, you know, unplugging. Uh, speaking of unplugging, let's still just, I don't want to, to not hear what Billy has to say as we, as we close out the last hour of the last show of the last of the 2023, Billy Ray, your thoughts, uh, big picture, the psyop, you pretty much given them, you got anything that, uh, that you want to discuss related to this before we close my friend, I got to turn your mic on, bud. Uh, I'm on Can you hear there me? There you go. All right. Nah, pretty much this is what it is. This is what it is. And this is what people need to need to really take seriously. Um, the, the, there are only uh, two real conspiracies that I can think of. Everything else is utter nonsense, right? And, and, and I mean it. It is utter nonsense. It might, it might be surrounded by truth, but most of it is nonsense. Um, but the mind control is real. That, that is real. And they're doing it through the social media. And it, it, there's no mistake. I, I do think I forget who mentioned it on the panel, but I do think this is going to go away um, as uh, this bin Laden story itself. I, I think it'll it'll uh, it'll play its its part and, and, and run and, and go away largely. But it does play into a larger um, a larger arena where younger people are changing the way they think. And uh, the the culture creators, the, the people who wage a fifth generation warfare on us, right? They're, they're very aware of how to manipulate those minds and how to colonize those minds through social media. That is mind control. If, if people think of mind control as sitting on a chair and and having a, a, a pendulum swim back and forth in front of their eyes and or, or being been being taken into some sight. And, and then they do a Kanye West on you. No, no, like uh, mind control comes straight out of your computer. It comes straight out of your cell phone, straight out of your television. That is mind control. And this is what's going on here. Admittedly, it can be proven. And, uh, and, and uh, this is what we need to look forward to. And this is what we need to turn our attention to and, and, and zero in on if we're going to make any headway, because it's going to, it's going to become, it's already dark. It's going to become even darker, harder and harder to navigate the waters and to see what's real and what's not. Right. And, and to the point that, um, I forget which one, I think it was you, Tony or, or, or Mr. Anderson that brought it up that, that, uh, they had to put out a memo to see which which psyop was real or not, which is probably a psyop <laughs> right. too. I, I don't, right. At this point, it's like, well, what is real? What, and why are they doing it? You know, if, if, and, and what, what turned me on to it is going back to the, to the 2016 election, how many uh, fake profiles were, were, were uh, created in order to, on Twitter, you know, and, and on Facebook in order to, to uh, mold perception and get people to cast their ballots in a particular way. You know, and, and that hasn't changed, in my opinion. You know, I mean, well, it's not. It hasn't changed. It's only going to get worse is what I mean. So that, that's what we need to look forward to in 2024. More of that. And we, we can't let ourselves be suckered in by it, even though it, it is incredibly difficult to not uh, be engaged by it and not be brought in by it because they pull on your emotions. And when they pull on your emotions, they've got you. 
because your emotions are fully involved in it and, and that's it. They, they, they've totally got you. So it's very difficult to disengage, but that's it. Is Tony here? Was he gone? He abandoned his post. There he is. I had to let my crew in. Uh, There's Wise Tony. Wolf is about to open here in Branson, so my crew was, right. was needing to get let in. That's I, I agree, with, I agree with you on setting the stage to to colonize the mind. That's what, that was the, that's what really grabbed me. And you and I, Billy, I think it was last year at this time, we were, we were on the David Knight show. And we were talking about that famous, uh, infamous, really, it was that commercial that was put out by the Army Psychological Operations Unit. And I think even you use some of that in the freeworld.fm site where it has a little ghost, (laughs) the ghost in the machine. Right. Uh, It's like we can we create the reality. And that that's that's so important for people to realize, like, you know, think Thinking for yourself, it's something that uh, the late, great Bill Cooper said, you know, over and over, do your own research. You have to go deeper. You have to think, you know, and step back and look at the big picture and, and ask yourself, am I call is my mind colonized? I'm sure it is on many levels. Um, that's why it's so important to have alternative media. And then, you know, the, the crew right here, look at this, this panel that I'm on right now, what is just an absolute honor, the great researchers, great thinkers, um not not a grifter one here (laughs) no anti-grifting zone i I was thinking with it being the close of the year we should end on something positive motivational so i was going to run this one by you i don't know if you've heard it but it's something like shoot for the moon because even if you miss you'll just puncture the projection screen because the earth is flat Uh, I hope it inspires all. Just for a minute, just for one, just for a split second, actually, I thought you were really going to do the the, like water cooler poster uh, in a corporate hell hole. You know, I thought you were really going to do that, Mr. Anderson. All right, we got like, I got to do really quick, folks, just guys on the panel, tell people where they can find you. Uh, Mr. Anderson doesn't want to be found. You can find him on Paratruther. Uh, Charlie, go ahead, tell people where they can find you. The new website is up and running, macroaggressions.io. You can go there. You can find all of the information about my show. Flashback Friday episode today that went out is Where Did All the People Go? Ooh, that was the number one downloaded macroaggressions episode of all time. <laughs> that one went, that's, a, that's, that's a good rabbit hole if people are interested in doing that. You can follow me on Twitter, at macroaggressions. Thanks, Tom. Love it. Guard, go ahead. Well, first off, big thanks. I noticed a bunch of people in the Rockfin chat. I haven't been able to check out Rumble chat, but thanks for all the contributions for the show today. And Tony, thanks for letting me uh, join you on this last show of the day, uh, last show of the year. Uh, and it's great to be here with all you guys. Uh, folks want to find me, Liberty Conspiracy on Rumble and Rockfin every night, 6 o'clock Eastern. And uh, check us out. We're on for about 90 minutes. I do my work also uh, for MRC TV, a couple, a couple videos and three articles a week. Go to MRCTV.org or check out their Rumble, uh, check out their YouTube. And then Gardner Goldsmith Substack. Uh, one of the big deals maybe uh, people might like is every Sunday we have the Sunday News Assembly. And there's at least 20 stories that pertain to liberty, plus a bunch of contextual information that might allow us to take away some longer term learning about freedom, economics, ethics, stuff like that. So that's over at Substack and it's Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. So uh, yeah, just uh, visit, say hi, uh, say nigh, whatever you want to say. I'd love to see it. And I really, really am so glad to be here with you, Tony, and and all you you fine cats as they shuffle us off to prison very soon. 
<laughs> I want to be in the same FEMA camp. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it'll be interesting. Uh, Billy Ray, closing thoughts, where they can find uh, you, all that good stuff. You got about the infinite fringe on Apple Podcasts. Find me there. Well, that's very well. And he's the host of America Unplugged, folks. So you got to find him on on Rockfin, R O K F I N dot com, America Unplugged channel, the Infinite Fringe podcast. We're going to be putting together a UFO podcast here pretty soon. Mr. Anderson will join that. We'll see if we can uh, find some others to join that uh, discussion. That'll be fun. That That's paratruther. Uh, you can find me at arterburn.news and, of course, wisewolfgoldandsilver.com. But use davidknight.gold. Give David the credit. Uh, we certainly want to uh, support this magnificent program. David will be back. All new shows, whole new year. So I want to wish everyone a, a happy new year. Uh, it has been, uh, wow. I mean, I look back 2023, all the shows that I've done over here on the David Knight Show, my own uh, productions and, and just trying to trying to make sense out of all of this has been an extraordinary task. And then luckily I've got, look at the people I can call upon. I, I'm a very fortunate individual. Uh, if I want to find out what's going on, I'm going to play the outro music here. And I am, uh, again, honored to be here. Uh, it's such a great experience. I'll be back maybe next Thursday. See you all about, uh, uh, bullion bitcoin the apocalypse we'll talk that with the great david knight all right happy new year folks appreciate you end of transmission <laughs>